hey, this is the amazing Spider-Man, sometimes known as the spectacular Spider-Man. Hey, you know, in any case, it's Spider-Man. And when I'm swinging around New York, I love to listen to the amazing spider talk, mostly because they're talking about me. And, you know, it's not J. Jonah Jameson, because when he talks about me, it's, you know, different. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned The amazing spider talk The amazing spider I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm the mischievous Marchinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks for joining me, Mark, for a special review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. You know, Mark and I, we hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, Dan, today we're going to be rounding up our Patreon reviews of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, numbers 16.HU, 17, 18, and 18.HU. That is the beginning of the Hunted storyline. We originally recorded these conversations back when the issues were first released for our Patreon audience. Mark, uh, when we were recording these, you were moving into your new house for a couple of the episodes. So we were lucky enough to bring on our good friend Alan Churstel, who you should follow on Twitter. He's at, at Studies in Crap. It's a long story. But yes, <laughs> Alan joined us on the show as your replacement. So I hope you guys enjoy Alan's commentary as much as we did and extend him a huge thank you for coming back on the show. And, you know, I think, Mark, we can both say this. We hope to have him back on again soon. Yeah, but not like, I mean, I feel like I'm Bagley getting replaced during the Bendis run on Ultimate here. I mean, it was pretty, you know, but if, if I could be replaced by anyone, I'm glad it was Alan. Yeah, I mean, Bagley came back eventually and then ended up killing that universe. So let's hope not the same thing happens here. <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> well, remember, everybody, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show, like Alan, and do all of our research. So if you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content like these very reviews when they were originally released on our Patreon subscriber feed and other additional episodes that we never release publicly, go check out our show notes, check out the Patreon page from there and consider joining our team. But I've talked a lot. Let's get right to the action. It's Alan and my review of amazing Spider-Man number 16 dot HU. What's Well, welcome back, Patreon subscribers. It's me, Dapper Dan Gavazdan, here to talk Spider-Man with you all, and I am joined 
by my new co-host. Why don't you introduce yourself here, co-host? It is me, the mischievous Mark Giannacchio, author of 348 Marathons Spider-Man Fans Should Run Before They Die. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm joking with you. It's your 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 like one or two time co-host filling in for Mark, who who could not be here today because he's a scroll. Uh, this is the audacious Alan Churstall, although I'm not sure that that audacious counts because it was not bestowed upon me by a member of Marvel editorial. Well, you know, I will bestow it on you. It's like secondhand knighting. <laughs> well, thank you. So I am the audacious Alan Jurstel, and I am joining you here today to talk about Hunted. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 16.hu, because why the hell not? Uh, we're going to talk about .hu. Should we end everything in our conversation with a .hu just so we're clear that this is not part of the mainstream line of this book? I mean, it sounds like the end of a Hungarian web address. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. So um, I guess before we get into it, how do you typically feel about these kinds of like side stories? What were you expecting from these kind of hunted or .hu uh, issues. Were you expecting it to be in Hungarian? <laughs> well, honestly, uh, you know, the side stories of, I mean, I find the big splashy events, usually my least favorite comics these days anyway. So I do tend to skip the side stories, especially if they're not written by the, the creative team. I, I mean, I, I bought the side stories that were written what was the last spider events, uh, spider Geddon? I, I bought the Christopher priest ones because, you know, I love Christopher priest. And even though I love him, there was no need to read those stories. Those stories didn't need to be published. Uh, so I did go into this with a little bit of skepticism, but knowing that Spencer himself was writing it and, I, uh, definitely lured me in. And I think that, Making it part of the main book, even with that H-U uh, suffix, does signal that this is a story that is actually part of this event rather than some ancillary product. And I, I'm i glad I did read it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I mean, they've been trying a bunch of different things over the years. Like if you remember for the Clone Conspiracy, they split it between Amazing Spider-Man and then another book called The Clone Conspiracy – and the Amazing Spider-Man book was kind of like the ancillary titles mm -hmm. to that series. It was like the gap. So they've been playing around with this, and I don't think altogether successfully. And even this, I'm not sure how successful I feel like this is. Because actually, I felt like this story was super important to read for an understanding of what we ultimately got in Amazing Spider-Man number 17 and even in Amazing Spider-Man number 16. Yeah, other than the change in art team, nothing about this story will be out of place if it's just in between the two mainline issues in the trade. It's kind of like almost like a, an in-between issue inside of issue 16 of Amazing Spider-Man. It like literally takes place in the middle of that story where you know we, we find out why Spider-Man got that spider tracer that he immediately knew was the Black Cats because she's always had a spider tracer, I guess. I mean, I, I really I, I do acknowledge that most of the events of the story could be, you know, captured in an editor's note or in the recap of the next issue, you know, without really confusing any any uh, comics reader. Uh, but it stands on its own. I mean, wait, no, 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 it doesn't stand on its own. It deserves to be read. Yes. And I, I'm surprised that there wasn't an editor's note in 16. I feel like the editor's notes have kind of taken a step back as of recent. I don't feel like they're really doing a lot of explaining, and maybe it's that Spencer's 
monologuing has been very um, not heavy handed, but exhaustive, almost old fashioned. Y- yeah, we're getting like you know flashbacks to the previous issue for, that came out two weeks prior, like nearly <laughs> and that will issue. be collected beside this one in the trade again, again. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's truly baffling. So, um, so like speaking of uh, Spencer's monologuing, um, you know, it kind of it, it's the bulk of this issue is. You know, we're following Black Cat, and we're getting Black Cat's thoughts. And one of the things that I've kind of always, you know, found interesting about Spencer's books is he seems to change who the audience is of these monologues, even within the issue. Like, you'll have Spider-Man explaining something to us, and then just talking to himself, or you have this kind of, like, weird omniscient narrator stuff, where Spider-Man will be talking about something that he can't possibly know about. How do you mm-hmm. find uh, in this issue? She's like talking to us. How do you kind of uh, find this stuff? Well, I didn't find that distracting in this issue. I mean, comics have always been well, Marvel comics have always been voice driven for a long time. It was Stan Lee's voice, you know, imposed upon every human <laughs> or or alien in the universe. We could only <laughs> wish for that reality. Yes, and you know, here, you know, her like there's a. There's a page in here where she's musing – like the scene begins with her musing about how she never liked babysitting as a kid uh, or as a teenager. And yeah, that – you can wonder – you can stop and wonder, well, who is she talking to? But you know what? When <laughs> when Ishmael says, call me Ishmael, who is he talking to? I mean this is just standard first-person narration uh, convention. And I am totally fine with that, even though it is a little bit different from a lot of uh, comics history. I barely know you, Ishmael. Let's not get so informal. (laughs) So, you know, Spencer has often said that Black Cat is one of his favorite supporting cast characters of the Spider-Man, you know, supporting cast. And that, you know, he got into writing Spider-Man and writing Superior Foes. By pitching a black cat story, how do you feel his, his grasp on the character is? Well, the basics are all there. And, you know, there is definitely an element of, you know, reset here after the the her heel turn uh, in the slot years. Uh, you know, I mean, she is I mean, I hate to say it. He, she is back to being awfully uh, Catwoman-like in that she's after baubles. Uh, her loyalties are inconsist are inconstant. Uh, you know, she she will s- want to stop and like help the defenseless, but not at the expense of not getting away with a trinket. I, I agree with you, Alan. And um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this particular story is that it seems to retcon. Like the Black Cat's mischaracterization, as we've often uh, characterized it on our show, uh, since the kind of end of the Superior Run, where she had that like evil heel turn, and for a long time we had kind of bemoaned that change as something that just didn't seem in character or justified for her, even because Spider-Man tried to explain himself in a pretty like logical way within the world of comics. Um, but here, it's like that whole thing is retconned to have been a reaction to her frustration and anger of having her memory of Peter's identity wiped, meaning mm-hmm. she couldn't remember the face of a man that she loved, uh, which almost creates a sort of like, um, almost like abuse uh, that was enacted on her by, by Peter, um, which kind of has her acting out at the beginning of this issue. And to me, like this is just one in a line of things that Spencer is doing to almost like 
retcon the motivations of characters from the Dan Slot run. And I personally, I have to say, like, I don't think this entirely works canonically, but I don't care because I really liked it and it made all that make a lot more sense to me. First, I want to get your feedback to that, and then I guess your thoughts on this kind of um, action by Spencer. Well, well, first, uh, with Black Cat, with Felicia in general, uh, retcon is, I, I find retcon might be, you know, we could call it that, but at the same time, I think you could easily talk your way into a no prize for any inconsistency in her characterization. Once this element that Spencer is highlighting is really, you know, once you really start considering it, because, you know, I mean, it, it's laid out in this issue that she wasn't aware of what she had lost. She knew she had lost something. She had lost some memory, but she didn't know what it was or why it mattered to her. And so, you know, in any of those stages uh, during her her villainy, her, her serious attempt to be the crime queen of New York, I think you could point to as like, well, here she didn't know why she was acting like this. So I, I, I feel like as a retcon goes, it's kind of a uh, an elegant one and one that has this this real melancholy to it that I find you know persuasive and interesting. And I think that it says something about Peter's character and the depth of their relationship that even though, you know, one of the hallmarks of the black cat uh, Spider-Man romance, something that really separates them from Catwoman and Batwoman, is that she hated Peter Parker. She thought he was what my mom would call a schnook. Time with him was what my mom would call the pits. She only wanted to be with the mask, which is, you know, referenced in this issue here. But the thought that having lost her sense of him, of who Peter Parker was, and that that is the triggering, you know, the, the triggering incident that makes her actually go through that heel turn. That the reason she turned like into a straight up villain villain, you know, willing to see people die so she could get what she wants is because she never knew Peter Parker. I mean, that's really interesting. And I kind of get the feeling that that is something that uh, Spencer might be planning to explore here. I hope so. I, I love the idea that it's even doubled down on that. Like she says, it's like she's constantly remembering the details of a breakup. Like all of this information has just flooded back into her mind and her every moment is like obsessed with these new memories that she's discovering that are painful for her. And it, it literally interrupts the flow of the book to, to put you in the mindset of her. Uh, and I love that the, you know, we'll talk about the, uh, the art overall, but even the paneling does this where the paneling is like these slices that cut through the page and you can feel kind of the pain. I feel like even just in the layouts uh, here, I, I thought this was really elegantly done. And, and I, there's, I don't want to jump ahead too much to the next issue, but the, in the next issue of, of amazing, you know, Peter goes through something slightly similar, you know, with, uh, intrusive thoughts entering his head during during a fight during a break-in and it's because of a mist that is being you know deployed against him and that could very well be being used against her here too she might not truly be walking around all these years later although in marvel time who knows how many years it's actually been she might not truly be walking around all these years later lamenting this one romance but those thoughts are coming back to her and they're hurting her. And I, I think that there is some emotional truth in that. Now, of course, there is always the chance that uh, 
we might be coming up against uh, some this woman character who is kind of powerful, can't really be her best because she got broken up with by a man years ago routine. But I think honestly, I, I think Spencer deserves the benefit of the doubt. And I think he is kind of I mean, I'm hoping that he's setting up those themes to be interrogated and maybe even assailed rather than just falling into them. There's a lot of evidence, I think, in this issue and in the next issue that Spencer is deeply interested in the way that women in Spider-Man comics have tended to be victims or tended to be uh motivating plot devices for Spider-Man or like Deb Whitman entirely animated by their, their, their anger or their, their emotionality towards Spider-Man. And I, I feel like he's toying with those themes, maybe even a little dangerously, but after, you know, after sticking with Spencer through the cap Hydra arc that so many people assumed the worst of as soon as it was announced, I, I, I think the man's smart enough to be after something here. I'm so glad that you're uh, you're you're on the same page as Mark and I about that Secret Empire thing. But um, yeah, to this, we even got a whole issue, you know, a few issues back with, of the lookups with Mary Jane, where she asserted her like importance, you know. Not just as the girlfriend, but you know, as an in, as an individual, and and uh, yeah, I think there is something truly, you know, what we're doing here, and you know, thank God because I feel like for almost like ten years we've had the women in Peter's life be complete pushovers, and you know, I'm excited for some change to happen in that regard. So I, I want to ask you, go circling back to the question I asked before, like it's something I've seen on the internet and something that I've thought a lot too is like. There seems to be a lot of, like, um, I mean, call it a retcon, don't call it a retcon. It is wading back into Dan Slott's run and seemingly addressing something that was unaddressed, you know. Whether you believed in the black cat turn or not, I think this is emotionally far richer. Um, and some people have kind of said that Nick Spencer's run is acting almost like a corrective to Dan Slott. I'm curious how you feel about that. Is this like a normal uh, handing over of the torch? Or do you feel like there is something a little more, like, surgeon-like in what Spencer is doing. Well, it's it's not like a normal handing over of the torch because, you know, I mean, Dan Slott was not a torch. He was a bonfire that raged for a decade over <laughs> so many anniversary issues. It's absurd. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Slott did more, Slott wrote more issues of this character than anyone else ever has, correct? I believe so, yes. And so... Every time a new creator takes over the franchise, like like every time every twelve issues, somebody new writes Daredevil, and everything that just happened to Daredevil in the last year is suddenly kind of not written off, but mostly forgotten as yet another traumatic experience, and then we move on. Uh, Slot's doing what it, I mean. Spencer's doing what any creator does when taking over someone else's book, uh, which is move it in the direction this creator wants to go, attempt to you know, change or fix or whatever you have to do with elements you might not have liked or that you want to be different in your run. But none of it feels, none of it feels to me like a corrective. I mean, I'm with you. Well, I don't know if you're with me on this, but where the black cat stuff seemed to me the biggest mistake of slots run. Like that was, I, I just didn't buy it. I wasn't interested in it. And I, I know you can't really ruin a character these days because you can always retcon anything. Spencer 
honors everything that he changes. Every time Spencer changes something in slot, he acknowledges that it really did happen, and then he starts digging out of it. And I think that is the way you should do it. You know, I think we're at we're at probably the most self-aware moment in comics history, and comics is the most self-aware medium that I can think of, uh, where, you know, every status quo is guaranteed to be upended. Even casual audiences accept many iterations of each character and can keep them straight, or they understand that you don't really have to keep them straight. <laughs> <laughs> and everything is an homage and an upending all at once, right? So Spencer's just, you know, he's pulling some toys out of Slot's toy box and he's putting the arms back on or doing whatever he wants with them. And that's fine. Uh, I think the things that I've enjoyed, I enjoyed most in Slot's run, like, you know, the concept of the Spider-Verse, even I haven't always enjoyed the execution of Spider-Verse stories or uh, Doc Ock or Anna Maria are all alive in the continuity and being used well in the elements that didn't need to stick around, aren't sticking around. Like Ned Leeds. Like Ned Leeds. <laughs> but I do, I, I just, I just want to say, I think I maybe have mentioned this to you before, Dan, but I have, like many readers, wondered at times, boy, does Spencer have some kind of problem with Slot? But I never wondered that over his treatment of Slot's inventions in ASM. I wondered that because in Spencer's own series, his, his series, I think it's an image called The Fix, drawn by Steve Lieber in the first arc there is a very nice police officer who looks exactly like Dan Slott <laughs> and, and the 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 characters in the fix the lead characters in the fix dirty cops uh who in a very Spencer way are you know shifty boomerang like losers <laughs> they do everything they can to humiliate this poor cop who looks a lot like Dan Slot and that poor cop who looks a lot like Dan Slot brings everybody donuts every day and everybody loves him <laughs> I mean it's it's pretty on point I don't know that I feel like the similarity is as strong as you're making it that sound but um, like I, I'm, I'm allowing you this as I have, and uh, and I will go with you on on this journey as as far as it goes because I think that's a hilarious uh, uh, thing to point out, especially the donuts element uh, of of it all. I, I I've met Slot. I can see him bringing donuts to a retreat. I mean, he essentially He's brought donuts to Spider Man for like ten years. You know, like it was like <laughs> full of sugar, but not really that full of substance. You know. Uh, uh, well, anyway, uh, let's talk about this book. So we get this kind of switcheroo with Hammerhead where he's kind of guiding her and, you know, his former boss. And he's like, you know, I'm going to give you all this art if you go and break my old boss, the owl, uh, out of, you know, containment on this ship in the harbor of New York. And we know we know that this ship is the very same one we saw in the previous issue, 16, with all the Craven clones, which I think the less said about the better. And, uh, you know, she breaks in there only to find out it's a trap. What did you think about this kind of characterization of Hammerhead? Uh, oh, I thought it was very strong. And, you know, my my one issue when I was reading this was, well, Felicia's being set up. Doesn't she see it? But Spencer, who I think one place we absolutely have to give Spencer uh, a lot of love is his dialogue, especially his dialogue among villains. And he has Hammerhead flatter her and her abilities. And that's why she doesn't stop to think, maybe I'm being set up. And I thought that was really smart. And of course, you can't trust this guy. Uh, 
and he gave us a reason for why she would. The best thing about Hammerhead in this issue for me is the idea that Taskmaster and Black Ant are uh, you know, qu- squibbling over whether or not he's an animal-themed villain because his name is <laughs> the name of a shark. Uh, I feel like we get one of these jokes in every issue from Spencer that's just a knockdown, like, amazing joke. Um, mm-hmm. I still think the king of all of that is the uh, Robbie Robertson of the vibrating chair. But uh, <laughs> this one is, is in good uh, contention for me. How have you kind of taken to Spencer's humor? Well, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of Spencer before this this run. And, I mean, there's no doubt about it. He is a terrifically funny writer uh, to the point where sometimes it can get in the way. You know, The Fix is a very, very funny series. but uh, uh, And his Ant-Man is a very, very funny series. But – and his – obviously his superior foes as well. But, you know, at times when he, after he's taken over ASM, I found – that ASM is a little inconsistent in whether or not it is a funny book like Ant-Man or a relatively serious book that occasionally has a great joke the way Spider-Man comics have tended to be most of my life. And so, you know, during that Thieves Guild arc, it all just felt like, like, you know, if these, if these characters were, were in like a a Marvel Next you know junior title like maybe I could believe this thieves this thieves killed plot yeah. <laughs> but you know in a mainline book it just felt both like the thieves guild is too impossibly powerful and too inconsequential and it's all kind of used to set up the shaggy dog joke where nobody none of the adult superheroes know to use a cell phone like Miss Marvel does like it just felt like the comedy was getting in the way in this issue. In the clone issue that we just read, that you just referenced, uh, it, it really feels to me like the humor is just dead on. Like the characters are funny when there is a reason for them to be funny or when something naturally presents itself for them to be funny. And then they're very funny. It's like this is like the the textbook example of the college writing class, you know, edict to kill your darlings, like only keep in the best ones. And then, it, man, it works. I think you're right about the the about the tone stuff because I do think he has trouble kind of mixing the tones up a little bit. Like Superior Foes from the very start was like clearly just kind of a comedy book with a bit of hot, you know, uh, of Ocean's Eleven mixed in to it. You know, like it was always funny and always you know no, uh, non sequiturs. But um, and you know and, and and issues that land on that line in Amazing Spider-Man have worked for me, like say the Spider Jeopardy. You know, yes, issue. I love I love those issues. Yeah, but when you mix the two tones, like the Thieves Guild stuff, I do feel like it kind of it, it doesn't always land right. And so, like, yeah, this this issue to me was like a okay, like we got one good joke in this, and and that was like really strong for me. And then and then you get less like jokey stuff but more kind of like smart character stuff like when Felicia is referring to opening up the lizard cage by like comparing it to how she steals Fabergé eggs and -hmm. it's like that got a smile out of me but it wasn't going for a guffaw and 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 those are details I really like and and I'm not gonna pretend it's easy to write a good joke or easy to write something funny it's not but it is easy for Nick Spencer to do that okay and what's also 
just as satisfying for a reader. And I'm just so heartened to see in this issue and the last issue that he seems very aware of this is that kind of really smart setup, really smart character payoff. You know, we call like a good action bit or a good twist in a story. We often call it a gag because they are related impulses. And I love seeing Spencer investing himself in that kind of gag as much as in wouldn't it be funny if Boomerang was in his underwear on the couch? Yeah, <laughs> which we certainly gotten plenty of. I'm sorry, is it Boomerang? I always forget his name. Is it, it... It's Boomerang. Oh, it is Boomerang. Okay. Yeah. So in, who's, in the apartment. who's the guy who can throw anything who always kills Daredevil's girlfriends? Uh, bullseye. 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 Yeah, yeah. Different people, but I guess somewhat related. Yes. Um, so we get this kind of like flashback during this kind of heist uh, with Felicia that we come back to several times throughout. And it involves, you know, the spider tracer that I was referencing earlier. But it's set up in a very different way that really kind of caught me off guard at first before it's ultimately revealed what it is. And it's this supposed like proposal between Peter and Felicia where she kind of comes out of the bathroom of Peter's you know, classic old apartment where he's got to go in through the bathroom skylight, which, I, I mean, when I lived in New York, I was always killing for a bathroom skylight. I don't know about you. <laughs> Who is his real estate rep? Why have we not got that issue? <laughs> um, with with women in bikinis that hang out on the roof, too. Like, that was, yes. that was the dream, right? So, um, but, uh, you know, she kind of comes in out of the bathroom and Peter's sitting there on the bed, you know, with what looks like he's going to propose to her. And immediately I recoiled this because I was like, that's a big beat to not really uh, have ever heard about before. And ultimately reveals to be, you know, just he's giving her a spider tracer and grabbed one of her jewelry boxes, which is, I thought was a nice bit of characterization, but um, I, I still kind of like recoil at the idea that Peter would so, um, cavalierly present it this way, especially after, at this point in the timeline, he had just recently proposed to Mary Jane and been turned down by her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. How, how do you feel about, about this moment? Well, all of that rattled through my head as well. Uh, just, it felt wrong for Peter. It, it, it felt wrong. I mean, he's, it felt wrong for the Peter that was in those issues written in like what the early eighties, uh, it might not be wrong for Nick Spencer's Peter, but Nick Spencer's Peter wasn't in those issues. And, you know, I understand that often, you know, creators inject like what we know now emotionally about the character, you know, back into the past. You know, that's how we get, you know, the great, you know, the, the, the great issue where Mary Jane and Peter walk around Central Park and like what issue 258, you yeah. know, and talk about their past. The, you know, the very uh, issue that you joined us on the show to talk about. Oh, I think it was. Yes. <clears throat> but here we're getting this through Black Cat's perspective. It is her flashback and she might be infected with mists that bring out all your worst fears and doubts. Uh, so there's a whole lot going on there. But still, as presented, Peter's cavalier dopery of presenting this, you know, in kind of a proposal pose uh, doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, to me, it's like the most sour beat in the issue. And also, it doesn't make much sense to me that she would care so much. You know, because at this point in that, was there a point in that relationship where she was not annoyed at Peter Parker? Uh, yeah, there was a point uh, where she kind of found out about it. There's even, um, a, you know, a scene that I like to joke around with Mark a lot about in 
Spectacular Spider-Man where she's in the hospital and introduces Peter as Spider-Man to her mother. Uh, so <laughs> okay, I forgot about there's that. A, there's a certain amount of like courting going on. Um, and and to, to this book credit, Peter does call her out on it. He's like, I didn't think you would care because like just a few weeks ago, you were didn't want to even know who I was. You, yeah. You, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a little bit embellished that she would care so much about it. There is a bit of like exaggerated, like reminiscing about just how romantic their relationship was but then again Mm -hmm. if you go back and read those spectacular spider-man issues where she's kind of the co-star i recoil at those issues because i do find them so heavy-handed about their romance so you know i think it's like there is enough to support this in in some regard I, i think there could be and i i feel like this goes back to a question you asked earlier about uh narration in these comics especially you know from spencer in that you know yeah he might not explicitly he might not obey every rule of you know every creative writing class rule of uh who you're addressing as your audience. You know, his his first person narration tends to change from present tense to past tense. Uh, it seems, seems to change who it's addressing a lot of the time. But he does obey, you know, the basic rule of perspective that this is Felicia's story. This is Felicia's memory. So we are denied the two panels of Peter like in a panic grabbing that jewelry box and then thinking, oh, wait, this is a dumb idea. You know, and you know he would have done those. I mean, yes. you know Peter would have done that. <laughs> but it's like all we would take, all it would take to sell me on this is seeing those two panels. And Spencer's fidelity to, you know, the structure, the narrative structure of his story denies us those panels. And maybe it's meant to be awkward and painful because that is what Felicia's experiencing, as you're saying, is the kind of she's remembering the pain of it. You, you know what I mean? And so for us to feel that way, maybe that should be the reaction. And then I very much like the beat a little bit later where Peter himself is really surprised that, oh, wait, you would be into that? He's like, oh, maybe there's an opportunity here. Yeah, exactly. exactly. He is so quick to rush to marriage. Uh, You know, for all the complaints about Peter getting married, it seems like that's his go to (laughs) any long term relationship that he's in. I mean, all it takes is going back to his first, you know, 30 issues of Dating Betty where marriage was on the table constantly as a teenager, you know? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And we all know nothing works better for a, uh, you know, a superhero vigilante than marrying a cat-themed burglar. <laughs> no, of course not. It's not like that, that'll that suddenly get ended at the last second. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, though, uh, you know, this black cat, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little confused sometimes, like what she's, what, you know, what she's feeling moment to moment, although she's telling us, I'm a little confused sometimes why she's feeling what, what she's feeling moment to moment, but she's telling us, but I don't know that that's Spencer's fault. That is just the character's deeply convoluted history. Yeah. So, so did this final moment of her, you know, she could leave and call the Avengers or go back and save Billy Connors. Did this final moment of her, having that heel turn where she's like, you know, I will go back and and save him. Did that land for you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it had it not it didn't land so much as have the the deeply satisfying sense of a tragedy starting. Yeah. You know, I I love the bit that the black Anne has been there the whole time. And he's like, I can't believe you did this. You know, even he's mm -hmm. surprised and kicks the crap out of her, you know, in, in a panel. 
Oh, and and the the panels, the small panels of him leaping toward her are so powerfully rendered, just beautifully designed. Well, that's a great place to transition to talking about the art in this book. We've mentioned it briefly. Eben Coelho, this guy who's never worked on a Spider-Man book before, and I don't even know what books he's done prior to this. It's not someone that's like I recognize the name straight out, but like in my mind. This may be the best artist debut on a non-main issue I've ever seen. Like, where is this guy? This guy should be a AAA artist locked on this book. Uh, at least that's how much I enjoyed the art in this in this title. He he did some some Venom stuff, right? It's possible, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, this book looks great. I mean, I do take some minor exception. I I don't know. You know, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, should Black Cat really look like she's in a fetish magazine? (laughs) You know, should she? He wouldn't be the first. But then she's Black Cat (laughs) wearing this leather cat suit and, uh, She's, she's always been drawn like this, and here she's at least drawn like with some power and some dignity. Now the Greg Land cover, oh, I, I was just find get much to more that. objectionable. You know, good God! But uh, I, I, I just got to say, I, I do think I personally prefer uh, Ramos's Black Cat, who we'll see in the next issue. Sure, but that's also because, well, you know me, Dan. Something bothers me that HBO really thinks I need to be like truly turned on to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> and something about that kind of bothers me here. It's like, guys, I'm buying this book because I want to enjoy these characters and their story and see some spectacular art, not because I really need like some kind of fetish material. I, I completely agree with you on all that stuff. I, 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 I kind of move past it with Black Cat because it's been true for so long. Of the character, it's almost a part of the character. It's not quite as in canon as, say, like, the White Queen who literally got a boob job (laughs) in the context of Marvel Comics to look the way she does. And if that's part of her owning her character, I do think it's a regressive step for Black Cat because I thought the new Humberto Ramos costume design for her that we got in the dance slot run was a step in the right direction in that Mm -hmm. it was more clothed and more cat-designed and... But we're back to this now, and so, you know, at least he's consistent, I'll say. But, like, beyond her, like, I thought that this Peter was really beautifully rendered, and I have I, not seen an artist shake up layouts like this in Nick Spencer's run in such an mm-hmm. exciting way. We mm-hmm. got, like, pages that are half slashes of stuff with panels that are weaving in and out of others. And those really pages wonderful. that are half slashes, it really feels like one idea is interrupted by another. I mean, it feels like a schism in the moment. I mean, they're really powerful. Yeah. And I wonder how much Spencer had to do with that kind of, um, you know, suggesting of the page layouts because, you know, Ryan Otley's layouts are so rigid. Like if mm-hmm. I love Otley stuff, but if there's anything I'd like him to play with. It's like, panel design you know he's very much in like the Ditko school of nine panel pages and stuff I mean his invincible is incredible but I I, there was short of like giant splash pages it was always very like structured rigid paneling and so seeing a book open up like this you know while, while still maintaining structure I thought was really exciting Oh, absolutely. Uh, also am I crazy or is he, does he draw the black cat as like five foot two uh, oh, yes. She is quite short. Yeah. She is quite short. Uh, 
But, oh man, the, the last page, the last page is just so beautiful. It's like he finally got a chance to draw Spidey, you know, in action in this book. And so you get this big, you know, splashy Spidey on the last page. And the layout really invites the eye across the page following the motion of the spider tracer and the way that comes out of, you know, the previous page's last panel where Felicia's lying on the ground and looking up and she sees like the little glinting light above her. You know, it's just beautiful. It's just this very, very cinematic, but not in a way that feels derivative of movies. It is its own thing, and it is persuasive and exciting, and it really left me, I'm going to use the word, Dan, pumped. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I, like that, I, I was excited about that tracer, even though I ultimately knew what you know resulted from it. So let's talk about grades. We do grades on this show. I, well, I know it's film critics – it can be annoying to assign a grade to something. Where does this sit for you on the the A to E scale? Well, you don't know where previous Spencer issues sit for me because I don't have to go on record every week and a half or every two weeks like you folks do. But this is a solid B, which is very good for the run. And I'm going to go with a B plus on this. This got me more excited than issue 16 for Hunted. And uh, – and and that's thrilling. It's fun to head into an event with a lot of enthusiasm. It is. And I've just got to say, I am entirely, I entirely disagree with uh, you and Mark about the Craven and all his co- clones routine. I thought that was so sick and so interesting and truly the maddest Craven has been in a long time. And I am totally happy to discard all of the family drama of Grim Hunt and just roll with that nutsoid idea. It's super heavy metal, so uh, I'll give it that. Like, I mean, it's it's fun. I just wasn't used to the way that in which it was like rolled out. Yeah, I, and I'm saying as having read like the two further issues that you guys had when you discussed it. Sure. All right. Well, perfect. All right. Thanks, Alan, for joining me. Always a pleasure. All right, Dan, you two sounded great. I, I'm not the least bit uh, put off by being replaced. Um, anyway, thanks to all our patrons at Patreon, because without them, we would have never gotten that awesome review with guest host Alan Schurstel. But fear not, listeners at home, there's more where that came from, including me getting replaced some more in this review of Amazing Spider-Man number 17. to have you here because we're going to start talking about Hunted today. And by we, I mean me, Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and my good friend and new co-host. Introduce yourself, new co-host. Well, hello. I am the mischievous Mark Giannacchio, author of 349 Wheat Cakes to Eat if you're a Spider-Man fan. (laughs) Mark, are you doing one of your voices again? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm actually the audacious Alan Shurstel here filling in for Mark Giannacchio, who has been called back to his home planet in its time of need. It makes so much sense now. Everything is lining up. Mark's an alien. I got it. This is all coming together. 
Well, today, Alan, we are going to be talking about the start of the hunted arc. If it hadn't already started two issues prior, it's Amazing Spider-Man number 17. We're getting straight into it. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, because it seems so pertinent to this story... Where does stories, you know, other famous Craven stories like Craven's Last Hunt and Grim Hunt sit for you heading into this event? Are you a fan of those stories? Oh, man, this is one of those topics that most people in the world, when they know me, just know, don't get me started on. You know, just don't <laughs> don't invite me to talk about, like, the great run of Spider-Man comics that came out when I was reading between, like, the ages of... 10 and 14, you know, which covered the DeFalco's, the, the DeFalco friends run, uh, you know, Jim Owsley's takeover of the book, uh, the rise of Peter David and the death of Gene DeWolf, which I still think should have been an essential you dopes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Craven's last hunt, of course, is like the bomb that was dropped on Spider-Man then, you know, I had not really, I had not been reading what's going on, you know, with Frank Miller or with the dark Knight. Uh, you know, and all that stuff. So the death of Gene DeWolf was pretty shocking to me. But then it was only like maybe 18 months later at Tops that we start getting this, this crazy story, this incredibly dark, crazy story that, you know, I must have read many, many times, uh, nude Craven wandering around butchering William Blake poems <laughs> <laughs> is just in my DNA. And I, I do feel very strongly. Well, first off, I have to tell you that no joke in early college, I'm in like some literature class, uh, like British poetry class. And I literally was surprised when we finally read Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, you know, by William Blake. <laughs> I actually thought it was Spider, Spider with a Y. <laughs> why, JMD Mateus, why? Uh, I loved that story and I was shaken by that story, like legitimately shaken by that story in a way I've very rarely been shaken by a comic story because it just seemed to go so much further than comics that I had read and certainly Spider-Man comics ever had before. The situation so much more dire, the situation so much more grim, the outcome so much more in doubt. And it took over all three books. It was crazy. There wasn't like an ancillary web of Spider-Man story to cheer you up, you know, where he working for Look Magazine goes to West Virginia and frees some children from some bad guys. You know, it just was it. He was dead. So I love that story. Now, Grim Hunt was a very good story that I enjoyed quite a bit, but I don't remember any details of it. And I've got to say, I've never enjoyed more than that any of the Craven's Last Hunt uh, throwbacks or homages or not sequels. Soul of the Hunter? Certainly not. In fact, now I have a kind of a strained relationship with Craven's Last Hunt as much as I love that original story. It's I feel the same way about it that I feel some about, say, uh, the Dark Knight movie or Frank Miller's work, which is – this was so good or Watchmen even like this was so good. This was so wonderful. And every imitation, everything that this influenced is garbage. So <laughs> I love it and I bemoan everything that it wrought. Yeah. So that's really interesting that you, you bring that up because it, it is true. And it's part of what Mark and I kind of wrestled with in our essentials and, and the death of Gene DeWolf is that like, 
they're very atypical stories. Like they're they're dark in a way that Spider Man rarely if ever gets, and whenever it tries to, it just feels wrong for the title. It's the kind of thing. It's like if you take a shot at the king, you better not miss. You know, uh, exactly. If you're going to break the rules, you have to be twice as good as anybody else. And part of what made those stories so powerful, uh, I'm sorry, I am totally interrupting what you were saying, but I, I, I think this might be an interesting point. <laughs> Please forgive me. Go for it. They remind me very much of, uh, say, like Indiana Jones and a Temple of Doom, which came out around the same time. And that and Gremlins, you know, were so traumatic for families that, uh, how, you know, families are very upset. And Steven Spielberg called up Jack Valenti and said, we need a new rating harder than PG, but softer than R. Those movies came out at a time where the rules were not clearly established for how far you could go, you know, and to suddenly go further than you had without really testing it or thinking it th- or, 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 you know, in a medium that was thought of as for kids, you know, was truly shocking. I know these stories, Craven's Last Hunt, Death of Gene DeWolf, are not shocking compared to Born Again or compared to Watchmen. But coming, you know, in like off a spinner rack, you know, at the little grocery store in my Kansas hometown, they were terrifying. And I'm always... I'm always interested and fascinated in these moments in like popular culture where the rules aren't clear and where the norms and boundaries are being tested, you know, and most of the work that has come since, you know, that has been derivative of Craven's last hunt has come out when the rules are clear and has just felt like, you know, more of whatever era it's from than like a true sequel. It does thrill me that the rules can be broken and people still react to them. Maybe not in the way that I want them to react, but like Superior Spider-Man and killing off Peter Parker and getting the reaction that it did meant that people are still invested in the world of this character and they and don't... same with Secret Invasion. Yeah. So like or that whatever that's that was thr- called. That's thrilling to me. Uh, Secret Empire. Yeah, that people people can be still shocked by this stuff whereas like old cynics like I'd say myself and I'm say likely you like, we know that Spider-Man's coming back, but we're still along for the ride. We understand the game um, mm-hmm. a, a little bit. So um, so let, let's get into that um, in this issue. I thought that the first page of this issue really set the tone for what, you know, Spencer is doing here. We get a darker, more devious-looking version of Humberto Ramos's pencils with this kind of naked, craven, bathed in mists, and just like glaring out at the audience. And then we have Joe Caramagna's uh, letters delivering the exactly identical lettering from Craven's Last Hunt. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the other parallels of the story. Like, do you feel like we're going to be able to tap back into that kind of, you know, Craven's Last Hunt feeling? I mean, look, Ramos is no Mike Zeck, but, you know, um, like... I, I don't know. I, are are you ready to get back into that headspace, or do you think Spencer's got his own unique thing? I think Spencer's got his own unique thing. I think those first pages are a you know a bang up homage. They're very strong, but the focus of this story right now is not necessarily Craven. You know, there's so much more going on. There's so many other elements. There's the clone kid. There's Arcade. There's all this complexity with the lizard and the lizard's kid and Black Cat. And it's just, I mean, for a six-issue story, Craven's, Craven's Last Hunt was pretty streamlined. You know, it was the will of the hunter versus his prey. 
You know, and here there's so many more elements in this most dangerous game element, you know, of everybody being hunted for sport that, no, I don't think we're going to get anything like Craven's Last Hunt. But uh, Spencer knows is smart enough to, you know, ground it in the emotion and the terror of that original story and then do his own thing. And as a matter of fact, as, as we talked about uh you know, last time, the other time I filled in when we were talking about the HU issue, Dan, Spencer is such – we didn't talk about this specifically, but I came close to making this point. Spencer is not Demetrius. Spencer is – Spencer has never spent time reading his DSM-4. You know, <laughs> Spencer is not obsessed with a Dr. Kafka. Spencer is a very, very different writer, and he's after something – I think very different from Craven's last hunt. And I like that. I like that this, that Spencer in this issue in the last two issues has these very dark moments, you know, has these, these, these terrifying situations and yet his kind of Spencer lightness, you know, and his, his joy in inventing, you know, surprises, uh, courses through it. It's a, it's a more grounded and less silly version of slot in my yeah. mind. Like he's more invested in character, but still can understand the kind of like silliness inherent in Spider-Man and a silliness that never appears in Craven's last hunt. And exactly. Although here we get the, maybe the most macabre thing I've ever seen in a comic, which is that Craven's home decor includes the coffin where he committed suicide. Just hanging out there. Like, <laughs> But that's a perfect Spencer detail, and he has the incredibly dark, macabre idea that Demetrius might have gone with, but in Spencer, it's knowingly funny. But I think the difference between this issue and a lot of previous Spencer issues on ASM is it's not like ribbing you funny. No. It's funny, and you know he thinks it's funny, but you can read that and just be chilled by it too. Well, there's real stakes in it, which is something yeah. that I feel like has been missing for a lot of Spencer's run. We've never had a true villain for Spider-Man to go up against. And, you know, we can find Craven deeply silly. He's the guy that had, like, laser nipples that come out, you know, like, that came out of his <laughs> costume. But he's still a threat. And, and so, yeah, you can <laughs> laugh at the coffin but still feel like this guy could kill Spider-Man at, at any moment. It's like that level of awareness of Craven's silliness and yet also how that silliness is part of why he's such a threat, you know, reminds me a little bit of Slot's, you know, mastery of Octopus's character. Like Slot knew exactly what was funny about Octopus and exactly what was terrifying about Octopus. And he tied them together tightly all the time. Yeah, that's a perfect way of putting that. Um, one of the things I wanted to note here is that, like, in the beginning of the story, Craven references that he can only be killed again by the spider, which is something that came out of, like, Grim Hunt, where, like, because he was brought back using the spider's blood, only the spider could kill him. And you're getting into all that weird totemic stuff with Spider-Man that some people like to touch and other people don't. And I feel like Spencer has kind of, you know, hinted at that here and there. And we've kind of speculated that this Shush character might be related to, to all of that. Um, and, you know, even I've been confused by this, but at the end of the Scarlet Spider run featuring Kane, that spell was apparently undone. Um, but here it's back again. And honestly, if it breaks continuity, I'm kind of okay with it because I think this is a really cool wrinkle to add into this story that, like, it, you know, Spider-Man is going to be cornered 
in this under-the-dome scenario. And if his only way out is to kill this guy and break his moral code, I think ultimately that's where we're headed, that kind of conclusion. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that Spencer is going to use this to push the character in a new direction because mm-hmm. that's been a story that's been handled a bunch of times, and, but like never in this kind of most so direct way. It seems like the perfect scenario to set that up. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm with you. That seems to be the hook. And that's a really powerful hook. Uh, so powerful that it's just kind of mentioned, you know, twice in this 35 page issue or however long it is, you know, that has so many other moving parts. And yet it is what is seizing me most about this story. But I I don't know about the continuity. I didn't read Scarlet Spider. When I looked back at Grim Hunt before so before recording this podcast, I couldn't follow a lot of what was going on in that involving Kane and everybody's status, whatever that was. But I don't think you need any of that for this to work. This is Craven. Craven is out of his mind. Why preening, self-regarding, nude, mist-huffing Craven? Of course, he's going to decide only the spider can kill me. He doesn't need any spell to do that. It's respect. Yeah, that's so totally true. And and look, don't feel bad about not reading the Scarlet Spider. Even the editors didn't read that book. If, <laughs> if, if you read the final issue of that series, it's like there's a spelling error on every panel. So like you you are not alone. Now uh, do. I, I forget. Do I need to know about Craven's offspring, his original offspring from Grim Hunt, to follow this story? Well, most of them are dead. Uh, Is that what happened? Yeah, I mean, even in like the issue sixteen, it showed him killing another one of them. I think, okay. I think maybe his daughter is still bouncing around out there somewhere. But like, oh, I kind of liked her. Yeah, she's she's, she's the Ivanka Craven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, we'll find out if she's married to Jared Kushner or something at, <laughs> at some point. Some kind of like self preening uh, preteen. I'm sure there's some spider ham version of Jared Kushner, but I can't think of it right now. You know, in the original Spider-Man comics, a spider ham comics, Peter Porker met Barbara Mandrill. That's how eighties they were. They were so eighties. <laughs> well, um, you mentioned to me before we even started this conversation that uh, one of the things you enjoyed the most is the obligatory web swinging while monologuing bit, um, which is probably the closest to JM De Mateus that we get in this issue, which is like, Two pages of just deep thought from Spider-Man. And- it's just beautiful. I mean, if I were ever like you to like be tempted to buy like original Spider-Man art, it would not be pages where he's you know beating up a villain. It would be his what uh, his his swinging around, wonder, musing about his problems. The artist always gets to just go nuts drawing a city and drawing swinging, and they're so exciting. And ever since Marvel's cut a page or two from the stories, we've really lost a lot of those. Slot didn't have time to do those. And I just love Spencer's habit of recapping everything for a page or two. And then he finally pairs it up with the classic Spider-Man swing along. You know, what is it? Mark always mentions the, the sad faces of guilt, Uh, the floating, (laughs) the floating heads of guilt. (laughs) We didn't need them in this issue. Although Ned Leeds has might've been up there. (laughs) Ned and flash both get floating heads of guilt in, in, in this issue, which is appropriate because uh, Ned was, a floating head of guilt in Craven's last hunt because he had died just, you know, a, a few moments prior. So we're getting, we're, we're oh, bookending yeah. this with Ned being dead in, in both, uh, 
in both issues. Well, and we're bookending all of those previous, both of those previous Craven stories we've talked about in that, like even in Graham Hunt, Spider-Man is sick. He has the swine flu, I believe in that one. You know, he's always, he's never at his best when Craven's around. I always wonder if Craven like steals his airborne before. <laughs> <laughs> and it always manifests itself with like the pounding drums in his head and all mm-hmm. these things. There's a lot of stuff like this uh, in, in, in the issue that I, I think is really great. Um, and it's really potent in that this issue is 10 pages longer than usual. Absolutely helps so much. This story has room to breathe. The the evil jungle mists can seep into our lungs. Right. There's not just one panel of them. There, there are like four pages of them seeping into Spider-Man, uh, beautifully rendered. So let's talk about uh, Black Cat because we get this scene with Black Cat where she's in this kind of like – uh, uh, South by Southwest, uh, or, or, what am I even saying? Oh my God, the Hitchcock movie. Oh, North by Northwest. North by Northwest. It's that kind of year where South by Southwest sweeps into the brain. Uh, North by Northwest, uh, like a style apartment, some sexy caper that she's on, which is appropriate for Black Cat, and she, except her roommate is a lizard boy. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got... Craven coming in in his suit, you know, um, and, you know, she's captured and he kind of admits that, like, they're bait and she kind of balks at this. Um, what did you think about this scene, like, and the whole, like, women as bait thing and, and I guess Craven's motivations? Well, I, I believe we've probably talked about this when you have been nice enough to have me on the show before, but, you know, the reason, the avowed reason, the reason I actually said out loud to a friend that I stopped reading Spider-Man and then by extension, all comics for about 10 or 12 years when I was 14 or 15 was that Mary Jane kept getting kidnapped all the time. Spider-Man had just married her. Michelinie had taken over the writing and it just felt like an infinitely dumber book than what I had been reading before that. And I, so I, I've always very sensitive to this kind of thing. And as, as, I, as we talked about on the other episode that I was on recently, talking about the HU issue, I really have some faith in Spencer, you know, partially because of that great uh, series of scenes he had done with MJ and the support group. And, you know, I know that those kind of defense, those kind of descended into jokey cameos, but there, there, there was a real emotional, you know, core to them that I, that I thought had some resonance. Mm-hmm. And, okay, there's another thing later in this issue. I, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump ahead to that, too, yeah. that I think needs to be considered when thinking about this is Felicia bait routine that is going on right here. When Peter is huffing these jungle mists and starts having these visions of Mary Jane in trouble, the first vision is just of her sitting on the couch, like eating popcorn or something. Yeah. And then – with no evidence from the outside world, he becomes convinced that she is in terrible danger. And I think he's wrong. I think that's just the way his brain works. I think, I think Spencer is really jerking us around with that, luring us to believe we're getting yet another one of those standard stories where Mary Jane is going to be kidnapped and Peter can barely save her. But instead he's showing that this is like, you know, this like traumatic loop that Peter's brain is stuck in. Meanwhile, we've got this uh, black cat routine where she is told that she is bait. I find that 
odd for a couple reasons. One, Spencer's very smart and he doesn't need her to be bait for the story to work. There's every reason she could be in Central Park at the end with any but with all the other animal themed characters. Spider-Man already has the Connors boy to track down, so she's redundant bait. And then her furious response to it. I love the panels Ramos draws of her, you know, screaming at him about, you know, how insulting this is that she is bait. I, I think the very idea of her being bait is going to be uh, upended, interrogated, examined, lampooned in this arc. And I think that it's being set up. There's a very good chance it's being set up that she's going to be the one who actually kills Craven. I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, I think it's reinforced by the fact that if Peter were to try to save Mary Jane, he's likely in this bubble for good in this story. So, like, narratively, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, the last time we really interrogated in a really full-throated way Peter's fears about Mary Jane was really Craven's last hunt, right? Like, they just got married, and he got buried alive, and the whole issue, you know, he's obsessing over her and mm-hmm. you know, being left alone, and she's wondering where he is, and she has no you know, real agenda in that story. And, 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 and this could be totally different. I'm not saying she's going to find her way into this story, but I think you're right. I think maybe this is a way to examine that trauma that Peter went through and, and to heal their relationship from his side, where she went through the lookups, he's going to have to get over that, mm-hmm. that immediate reaction. So I, I think you're right about this. Um, I think it's a way to, like, you know, raise the stakes and the, the re- ultimate reveal will be that these stakes were completely artificial. Well, and yeah, that is where, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping. And again, I'm basing all this on my trust in Spencer. He's a very smart writer who is aware of every stinky, dumb trope and is always guessing what you're going to guess. And I also, you know, as we, we talked about on the other show, have a lot of respect for how he handled, you know, that potentially explosive. Well, I guess it was truly explosive because people were so upset. Secret Empire story, which was handled with so much more thoughtfulness and nuance and like just interesting ideas than the coverage of that story would ever make you suspect. I mean, I made you go out and read Secret Empire Omega, which I think is one of the. Oh, that was spectacular. That, that was one of the best things Spencer has written. And he's written some excellent things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I'm really excited about seeing where this goes. And, and I but think- can I just say that at the same time, even if he is critiquing, assailing, putting a nail in the coffin of these kind of story beats, it still bums me out having to be go through these kind of story beats again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, and, but I, I do see this in a, you know, we talked about in our last issue, I see this in a longer line of like Spencer being corrective about the comics industry and not mm. just Dan Slott, you know, like, uh, the, the, and I feel like he needs to get through this before he can truly take, do his own take on Spider-Man. Like, I think that like my, if my theory about Shush holds true, that it is mm-hmm. a way for him to bring back the spider marriage and like, finally put it to rest. I feel like this is the guy who admittedly read every issue of Spider-Man before, you know, getting onto this book and, you know, but he's so much more knowledgeable about comics than even just that, you know, that his idea for Captain America was to do what he did to him. Like, this is a guy that wants to address these things head on. And I Mm -hmm. really feel like he's like, okay, if I can set, like, this is all set up to his ultimate long game story, which is the shush story, which I think is going to make Mary Jane and Peter face that marriage head on so that we can all get past it. We, we've got to get past this so that Spider-Man can 
once again regain his place in pop culture with no caveats. And I think part of what you're saying is, is, is part of that. And these are all steps to repairing the Peter MJ thing uh, one moment at a time. I, I agree with all of that, and I, I hope you're right in that that's where all this is going, although I don't care if the marriage comes back or not, whatever. No, 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 <laughs> but, me either, but we have to address it. But you're right in that Spencer is, as we saw with Black Cat, continually diving into these very thorny, contested patches of spider history and trying to plant something there. It's like he's he's going into earth that has been salted and scorched where nothing should ever grow again, and he's dropping his Spencer Miracle Grow on it, and he's going to make something green out of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't even, know why even, I'm plants <laughs> in an animal park. Even even the the JJ stuff, right? Like, here's a really <laughs> problematic thing. JJ knows Pete's identity. Well, let's do something new with that. You know, yeah. like uh, I, I feel like he's very much. He's Mr. Band-Aid, you know? And, well, uh, and, and that's I, – I really appreciate that he respects the readers enough to actually engage with the specifics of the botched, confused continuity rather than just asserting in the story, this is how it is now. You know, I mean, how many times has Rhino shown up or Sandman shown up and we're told, nope, he's a villain again with no explanation? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Spencer will not do that. But he's also – not necessarily going to let dwelling upon those thorny continuity issues slow down a story. No, and it's a tricky just, balance. And he'll throw them aside when he doesn't want to use them. The Ned Leeds thing is a perfect example. You mm-hmm. know, like that was rife with 20 stories of potential Ned Leeds is back and he's got the memories about the Hobgoblin stuff, but we don't even delve into it. He's just gone. I'm not going to tell Betty all this. My God. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let, let's get into Craven, back into Craven again here. One of the things I'm still, and I, I'm, I'm waiting to see how it shakes up, is I'm still not entirely clear on Craven's motivations. And granted, it's like the really the first issue, if you want to call it that, of this thing. I don't quite get like how all of these various arms all come together. Like, what is he doing with these hunters? Why does he care about these villains in animal costumes? And how does that tie into getting Spider-Man to kill him? I'm not sure what his game plan is. And it's bad for a villain to tell me their game plan straight out of the front. But I just don't know how they work together. And I don't know if that's a negative, but it makes me feel like, uh, how is this all fitting together? What does he actually want? I I feel like that is a concern that is outside of the story itself. That does not mean it's not a legitimate concern. I have it too. Yet, we're so used to stories spinning out of control, especially stories that have extra tie-in issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, you know, yeah, I'm a little worried that all of these elements might not cohere. You know, I mean, Craven's done goofy stuff before, so I can entirely buy the putting a shield around Central Park and taking over the Plaza Hotel routine. Great, but why would he do that when, you know, the story that, this issue pays homage to in its first pages is the rawest, purest me versus him. Right. And I I wonder if maybe some of these things are the new vermin element, which is kind of the like weird offshoot of Craven's last time that for me has never really felt truly at home in that story. I I never (laughs) cared about vermin. And like, I wonder if there's like, he's been replaced with these hunters and, you know, the monsters of the world as, as 
it put it in the last Craven's last hunt. Uh, I just can't believe there's still people in the Marvel universe who are like, Oh sure. I'll put on a crazy suit and take a gun and go fight some bad guys. Like, I mean, come on, like, Join the wild pack or something. What are you doing? <laughs> you mean you you wouldn't put on a suit that had facial hair printed on the front of it? <laughs> I want to know who these people are, but I, I guess that's possibly the issue here is that these elements aren't really being teased. We're, we're not being promised that there's a lot more here. It's just all kind of happening. I, I'm still intrigued to see where it goes. You oh, know? yeah. I think it's going to make allies and enemies alike in the face of th- this hunt and that will be interesting. I mean, all I want is a Spider-Man, the Gibbon team up, which, <laughs> which one of the dot HU issues promised. And I don't know if you noticed, but there is a head of Gibbon floating in the background of one of the spreads here. And I was like, there it is. We haven't <laughs> seen it in near, in over 500 issues, but the Gibbon or more than that, even I guess six or 700 issues, the Gibbon makes his return. I cannot wait. I am. And I, I mean, when I look at the solicits for what's coming up and I usually don't do that, but I did that for these podcasts. Uh, I gotta say I'm excited. I mean, this is the most excited I've been since the first Spencer issue. Yes, I agree. I think this is probably the best issue since the first Spencer issue as well. So let's talk about this big brouhaha that happens. We've kind of danced around this. We're calling him Craven Jr. on the show. Um, I, like, I, and, and you suspect maybe the black cat kills Craven. I am in the camp that Craven kills Craven. Uh, oh, sure. At the end of the story, because how do you one up uh, Craven's last uh, hunt? The only way that Craven can really prove himself worthy is to kill himself again as his younger self. I, I can't believe I just said that. But uh, it's comics, people. That's the only way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, look, look. Craven killed himself before. We're going to just make that literal, and he's uh. going to kill himself. Uh, but uh, what do you think about this 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 big uh, brouhaha fight in the, in the uh, I guess, the sewers? Oh, well, I loved how it was drawn. Uh, it was, you know, a good, exciting first round new villain. Spider-Man is sick. There's creepy mists going around fight. And, you know, the thing I liked in it, you know, other than, you know, the art, which, you know, is just I, I, I love uh, Ramos's skinny Spider-Man. I, I, I just love him. Uh, but what I really enjoyed in this was at one point in it, Spider-Man turns on his Popeye swallowing the spinach. I'm indefatigable. I will never stop routine, right? Yeah. And it doesn't work. And usually he only pulls that out like when it's going to work. He pulls it out against Fire Lord. He pulls it out against Juggernaut. And here, no, it's just not doing it. Yeah. But for and, a pen, it's like it might. And he's interrupted by his like doubts about MJ, which is interesting. Yeah, and the way oh th- that the scripting on that was so strong the uh the the pan the, you know the letter panels that are just one word of a continuing message across oh it's so so good the, those letter boxes and I mean I I got to say this there's a moment in this I know that this fight structurally speaking is the first clash between this hero and this villain in this story so the hero's going to lose like I know that as soon yeah. as the fight starts there's no way around that everything is set up for that it was still tense I agree I mean like I, I think maybe like artificially inflated by the MJ imagery which mm-hmm. is really shocking and uh cryptic enough for you to go like 
oh no, what is actually happening here? But then, like, you know, the brutal nature of the conclusion of this fight is, you know, these big sucker punch panels, you know, with literal sucker punches on them. Uh, like, you know, rarely has the book been that brutal towards Spider-Man. And uh, uh, I don't know if I appreciated it, but it, it, it's, it, I mean, the stakes are, are raised even further. You know, this guy's doubts are going to creep in and allow these villains to manhandle him. And Spencer's truly powerful dialogue is really an assist there when Craven Jr. or Kraju uh, says, you know, that you're just a dying man. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and one of the ones that, I mean, it made me eye roll that I was born in that darkness uh, quote. Oh, I loved it. I love that so much. That's just beautiful. That's pure Craven nonsense. It's like Bane. Oh, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it felt parodic because it's not. That's why I think Spencer's at his best when there's an element of parody there, but it does not feel overtly parodic. And, you know, that's just the kind of corny nonsense the depressed, nihilistic, cloned craven would say, you know, I'm so tough. I huff the mists that make you see your worst fears. Like, you know, I, I, I call up my man Mysterio and just have him send me over six of these a week. (laughs) 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 We got, we got Mysterio drug bike service in my town. Bring it over. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, it's corny. It is corny. I think you're supposed to roll your eyes at it in a way, but I, I just thought that was wonderful. I love that Spidey bashes him with like a pipe that he pulls out of the wall, which is literally what he did to Vermin when he was fighting him in the sewer. Oh, wow. It's It, it seems like a, a very intentional uh, uh, reference to me. Um, and I think you and I kind of coming down the same place on these myths, like – they want to tease you with this is going to happen, but it's all in Spidey's head. Are we both landing very clearly on that side of the fence? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, as soon as you have an element like a mist that exposes your fears or might show the future, you, you can't take – I mean, I, I just hate prophecy stories, you know? <laughs> and I'm always, always willing to – sometimes stubbornly so to, to read the twists and turns of this kind of thing wrong. If, if they, you know, if they don't play out to my satisfaction, I was so just no, waiting I, for him to pull back the curtain and, and say that they got the miss by like milking Madam Webb or something. <laughs> exactly. And I, I love that we've not had any Madam Webb stuff in here. You know, you mentioned the totemic, uh, stuff, you know, from the JMS run that has, you know, ever since JMS's run kind of occasionally resurfaced, but then it always gets popped back down like a whack-a-mole. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel like Spencer's approach to it here is about as deep as I enjoy it going, which is, yeah, it's kind of weird. There's all these, you know, animal specific villains going around, but do they tap into some primal essence that can be feasted upon by space vampires? We don't need to get into that. I I agree with that because for me, JMS has run, it always, you know, it was about like science versus mythology. And in the end, it's never said whether the totems are real or not. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. some evidence, but the final scene addressing it is like, well, you can choose what to believe. And then it seems over the years, it's like, no, this is a real thing. And then now, now Spencer's kind of back here like, 
it's a real thing for those who believe in it, like the Cravens. You know? Exactly, uh, exactly. And that's I like that's how I like it to be. No, as a motivating factor for characters crazy enough to buy it, I love it. As something I'm supposed to ponder and truly take seriously. I mean, I remember reading those original JMS issues and, you know, they teased beforehand. Th- those are what brought me back to Spider-Man, by the way, after my years off. Uh, and they teased beforehand uh, the quite like, this issue is going to make you ask a question nobody's ever asked before. And it turned out that question was, did the spider mean to bite Peter Parker? Which is, that's not a question worth asking. (laughs) Well, now we got to ask the question, did the spider mean to bite silk? (laughs) I am curious about the fact that, uh, According to the splash page at the back of this issue, uh, the Cravens have the Cravens have failed to dispatch Taskmaster and the Black Ants to to haul in all of the other spider themed heroes except the heroes. They brought in Tarantula, but they've not brought in Silk or those heroes. Yeah, right. Uh, although I I do think we're going to get an eventual heel turn where Taskmaster is tasked to capture the Black Ant because somehow he's managed to avoid his animalistic outfit. Uh, I, I don't, yeah. I don't, it seems like a strange pairing, but, um, let's talk about, um, Humberto Ramos. I think before we get to what is, I think the grandest of splash pages in this issue, the, so good. the reveal of all the villains. So like, how do you feel about Humberto Ramos for this story? I mean, he's got a bit of a lighter touch for a story that seems as dark as this one might be headed. That's one of the things that I'm really responding to here. Uh, Spencer and Ramos both have a lighter touch than all previous Craven Hunt homages. And I like that. It does not feel like, you know, a lot of those stories have tended toward a tendency that I call grim dumb. You know, some people call it grim dark. I call it grim dumb. <laughs> I prefer it's yours. Always dumb. And, you know, this story. You, there was the you, you singled out that line earlier about about Kraju enjoying those mists and like he lives in that darkness, and you know that's the only line here other than in the first two pages that actually sounds like it could come from the your usual Craven's last hunt retread, and Spencer's not giving us that. He's giving us. Uh, a tense adventure that has at its core the goofy concept of, you know, the old book, the old short story, The Most Dangerous Game and Hunting for Sport with a bunch of rich jerks who are it's it's craziness. I think it can't it, be that kind of story. But I'm impressed at the range of Ramos and Spencer in that in the moments that are touched with terror, you know, or touched with Craven's obsessiveness it does rise to the level almost of that story. I totally agree. I think this is Humberto Ramos at his most adaptive. Mm -hmm. And I think it's shown how much he's grown, you know, over the years, you know, going back to all the way back to like death in the family in the Paul Jenkins run, like, which yeah. is nearly impossible to ferret out what's happening in the action scenes. Mm -hmm. But, and it's, it's very similar. It's a rainy, day and 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 obscured in darkness and here everything is crystal clear uh, mm-hmm. i'm never questioning the storytelling i mean even look back to a few years ago with like spider island where the fight scenes in that were madness impossible mm-hmm. to ferret mm-hmm. out who the subject of any frame is even though i like that story like but here he has really learned about pacing and uh you know layouts and 
everything is clear. His characters are beautifully emotive, just like the best of his work, which I would like formerly have put on something like Amazing Spider-Man 700 and mm-hmm. the like flashback scenes with Peter where he's in that kind of heaven. I think that was mm-hmm. his most kind of like sincere and earnest. And here everything is like – I mean we don't see Peter's face very much, but um, all the characters are – are, are, are you know blue, beautifully emotional, um, and, and I buy all of their even Felicia's retorts and and fury. All that stuff is great, and uh, I think you know he's had so many effects from the gas to the rains. Mm-hmm. They're also beautiful. And there's done. several, especially early on. There's one of Felicia. These uh, these kind of uh, cross hatched portraits. You know, of characters when they're first mentioned. The first time Black Cat, we see Black Cat in this issue, is this beautiful portrait that takes up about a quarter of a page that is just iconic. It's so, so good. She suddenly has freckles, but I'll buy it. That, that's fine. That's fine. She's, she seems more like he draws her more as a real person, even though his style is more avowedly cartoonish than, uh, oh, who who drew the last issue? Oh, oh Coelho. And I'd really like to sing, single out the page after Peter has been beaten. We get we get the black page of nothing. And then we get the very rainy page of uh, taxis outside the Plaza Hotel, uh, Spider-Man being lugged by Craven, Craven Jr., I'm sorry, you know, Black Ant and Taskmaster watching this from a tree. Just like four panels stripped across the page, silent, deeply emotive, deeply upsetting. Even the silent sequence of Arcade flipping on the shield and all the people running from the glowing pink, you know, Mm -hmm. it's got a haunting nature to it, something that's so silly. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And and I really, I think they're, uh, you know, I think I love Otley on this book, but I also think Spencer and Ramos are a perfect pairing. And I think it's surprising because you think after all these years, and Ramos has been on this book for over a decade now, that we would kind of feel like his stuff is rote or tired and that we, the book should move on to someone new. But I think Ramos is very clearly etched out of space for himself in, you know, all time Spider-Man artists. And, and this book is already off to a great start for him. Mm-hmm. And this, this book is, is like just exhibit one in that, you know, and then of course, uh, 700. And I also want to single out the wonderful panel design of the, I believe, you know, one of the one of the last pages just before the big splash, where after Peter is coming to in a black costume in the park, he sees Tarantula, and then we get all these small detail panels of what what is the bunny woman's name? I always forget. White Rabbit and her furry boots. Her furry boots. Her furry boots. Her little furry ears. So good. Yeah. Just so good. Those those suggestive little panels. It reminds me of uh, John Romita Jr.'s reveal of the Hobgoblin. Like you're seeing mm. elements of his costume slowly building it up, and ultimately that reveal of all the villains is one, an all time awesome. Like I I think about that one compared to the reveal of the villains in the Clone Conspiracy, where they looked like they were all part of like some weird like collecting card game where they're all just standing there like here everybody's got so much character in how they're posed you know mm-hmm. uh, the threat of the scorpion this was a really cool page uh, i felt like and boy am i glad to see the classic costumes on everybody returning 
And so those pages are so powerful that for me, it was almost a disappointment when we then get, you know, the randos with guns bursting into the scene. You know, uh, I would be totally fine if we just had Spider-Man and all these animal villains, you know, going Hunger Games against each other in Central Park while, while Craven and his clone son hunt them. And then we get all these... I, I just have no respect for mooks in the Marvel universe who wear masks, have no powers and are like mercenaries, you know, who work for whatever villain they work for, have gone to the taskmaster school. These are the guys that you always have like a couple Avengers with not a whole lot of powers. You have to throw these guys into the story so they can beat them up, you know, while, while the big name Avengers actually deal with the problem. These are the guys that uh, the Fantastic Four brings Wyatt Wingfoot around with them sometimes just so he can fight i i am interested in exploring what seems to be this idea that like the villains that spider-man goes up against are like deeply damaged people who resorted to crime because of their inherent character flaws whereas these hunters are people that have everything that's going for them and yet still elect to be violent you know joyfully violent evil people and I wonder if this story is going to be Spencer kind of drawing the line between like, yeah, there are villains at Spider-Man fates, but the worst people are the people that just, you know, opt their way into power with no responsibility mm-hmm. versus the mooks who kind of fall backwards to their own detriment into power. And, uh, and that's interesting to me. Oh, you just know that, you know, these billionaires are going to use this to get their kids into elite colleges. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know I, how that, to thread that needle that you set up me up for. But the, yes. the, th- those, I mean, I got to say, before we got to the actual, you know, page where we see, you know, this kind of commando squad of rich hunters bursting into Central Park, the weird fact that this is the Plaza Hotel and there's this ball going on and there's all this money invested in this, you know, this is like Craven Madoff stuff. And I, I am eager to see where this thread goes. I also don't know why Craven needs money, but it feels very timely. You know, I mean, just this week, the Washington Post ran a story that was pretty much, here's why we hate billionaires now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something that has shifted in my life to, uh, to where now suddenly the thought of wealth in America no longer is like necessarily suggests decency and hard work. <laughs> So I'm kind of eager to see where that goes. I just want to sound one more note of uh, possible caution, which is I really liked a lot of what you said earlier about the clarity of Ramos's action scenes in this issue. Granted, his big brawl was, you know, mano y mano. When I saw that splash page, I my excitement, of course, peaked because it's such a great splash page, but also I'm suddenly also kind of back to, oh, no, are we going to get a too many characters events like we've had so many times before where each character gets maybe one good moment to shine? And we have a lot of cluttered, confusing splashes where you can't really follow beat to beat action. I, I agree with that. That is a real fear of mine. What I'm hopeful is that the Central Park is enough for everyone to go their own way and that we stick with Peter through this. And if I have one complaint about Spencer's stuff, other than the first issue, it's that it seems not very Peter centric. He's very interested in the supporting cast. I think almost over Peter and I'm hopeful. And I think this issue got us into Peter's headspace 
<laughs> with the Mary Jane stuff and the web swinging and monologuing, that this is a you know the first real delve into who Peter is, and and we're gonna ignore all that other stuff. But I agree with you. I don't want to see another like here's Team Z and they're doing this task, and here's mm-hmm. Team F and they're doing this task, and they're in outer space for some reason. You know, like I worry about that as well. I, I'm heartened to see there's not enough issues really for this story to look like it's going to be padded. I agree. But then we could also get the Dan slot thing where it's like, we go nowhere for four issues. And then the fifth issue needs to wrap <laughs> up everything and it's handled inelegantly. Uh, uh, can I, can I ask you now after having read all three of these hunted issues so far, the black cat issue, the HU issue that we talked about last time, does that, is that something you absolutely should read to really follow this story? I think so. I mean, I think Black Cat seems to be a major player in this, and I think understanding her headspace is important. I mean, we get a bit of a recap here, like, oh, it's the spider tracer that Peter gave her. But, and I don't know that you need to know that he gave it to her while mock proposing. You know, this is a character that was radically changed just a few issues ago in, you know, back to where she, who she used to be. I think it helps people to understand that context. I mean, I don't know. Is it essential? I, I, I don't. I can't say. But for me, I think you'd be missing a lot if you didn't pick up the HU issue. And it feels essential to me, maybe not necessarily for this story, but for where Spencer is taking this character who it seems he's taking great pains to try to work back into the main cast as a serious supporting character. Yeah. And I think Spencer's interest in character over everything else makes that issue important because it is so heavy on character and it's like, you're missing like a main thrust of what he's interested in. And it's also just a bang up issue. Yeah. Well that too, that too. So let's talk about, um, uh, grades on this issue. Alan, uh, where does this one sit for you? Uh, I'm going to be just very slightly cautious. I might regret this later for not being a little more gung ho, but this is an A minus. And I'm right there with you. A minus. This is a really, God, I don't know. Maybe an A, just those pencils, man, those pencils. Yeah. It, it, I mean, look, I, I, yeah, we could easily go A, but uh, I've been burned before, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, I've bur- been burned and mackied before, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, here here we go. Um, hey, I'm glad you mentioned them, because I thought of them while reading this, and I thought of them a lot during the slot run. You know, the slot run had its peaks and valleys, but... Even at its least inspired, you know, like maybe during some of the Parker Industries stuff, it's just I always had the sense while reading the slot run that this creator cares deeply about these characters and cares deeply about all the previous stories about these characters and is just trying to make something great. And I feel that during the Spencer run, too. And that is not something that I can say I always felt during all the runs of Spider-Man history. No, and it is a, it is a good buoy, you know. Like for all for all of the things that you might say about whether you enjoy Dan Slott's stuff, there is a respect for mm-hmm. these characters that comes through, and you can't be too upset about what they do to them because, you know, they you can tell they deeply love them. You know, like do I think P- Slott's Peter Parker truly understood the character? No, but I know that he loves whatever version he thinks Peter Parker is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
So uh, A minus is from both of us. Thanks to everybody at home for tuning in. And Alan, thank you for uh, filling in here on this episode. Or should I keep referring to you as Mark? <laughs> I wish I could be Mark. Well, I love having you on the show, Alan. And, uh, you know, if, if Mark's gone, at least it gives me an excuse to talk to you. Well, always a pleasure, man. Uh, keep your feet on the wall and keep thwipping for the stars. You nailed it. <laughs> So it was great fun to have Alan join me for those two episodes, and we hope you guys had fun as well. So thanks again to Alan, but enough with the thanks. Let's invite Mark back on the show for our review of Amazing Spider-Man number 18. Yeah, Dan, all I got to say to you for that is this. Bravo. Mark, I hope you're not bitter about me replacing you for two episodes. Yeah, just just two. <laughs> Felt like less when I was gone, but okay. All right, well, you know what? Let's go to the next review, and Mark and I will deal with this during <laughs> while you guys listen to that. What's new? Well, welcome back, Patreon subscribers. It's I, Dapper Dan, and I am joined by my co-host, my banter buddy, back from his break. Introduce yourself, banter buddy. Yeah, hi, it is I, the mischievous one, Mark Chinacchio, coming live from the basement in my new house, Dan. How are you? Very exciting. Uh, you have a bar down there, so I guess you're going to be able to invite all these villains over for a drink. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this could become the new supervillain bar that burned down, right? In a, <laughs> many moons <laughs> ago. Got, you know you have to put over the bar down there that it's the bar with no name. The bar with no name, exactly. I mean, it's... Yes. <laughs> uh, so, Mark, uh, you were gone, and while you were gone, I invited our friend Alan Scherstel to guest host the show with me, which felt very weird. Like, the first one in, I'd say, what, like 200 issues of Spider-Man comics that you haven't reviewed it with me? Right, right. Don't quit your day job, Alan. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be actually pertinent for Alan because the closing of the Village Voice. But yeah, well, true. <laughs> uh, Sorry, <laughs> we, our hearts go out to you, Alan. Uh, Mark, I did want to ask you though about your thoughts about you know issue seventeen and uh, that sixteen dot hu that we didn't talk about. Did you tell me what what did you think about these issues? Um, well, let me let me first start by saying, and you know, I'm not trying to do a cop out here, but it feels like those issues came out like 200 years ago for me right now. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. um, uh, in 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 talking about it, um, you know, certainly I felt like um, 17 left more of a pressure on me, to be honest with you, at least you know, in retrospect to what I can talk about at the present moment. But like, I felt that. The stakes were certainly raised. I mean, we had some concerns going back to issue 16 about like, well, w what exactly is the drama here? I mean, we kind of had that weird, uh, very um, exposition heavy issue that was like mining uh, uh, what looks what seems like a flashback of something that never actually happened. So like I, I, you know, I was very relieved where 17, it actually seemed to kind of ratchet up um, the suspense and, and the drama in terms of 
what was going on. I it's it still left me with questions about what exactly is Craven's play here, and I have those questions even more so once we start talking about issue eighteen here. But you know, like we're 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 dealing with MJ in danger, and and you know, there's certainly some stakes of that, and it just it's it it's I don't know. I I I do like. The settings, this, the story is actually reminding me a lot of Spider Island so far through these issues in terms of kind of the idea that this feels like a big event, but it's a big of it's a big Spider-Man event and that it feels very insular to the world of Spider-Man, if that makes sense. I totally agree with that. I feel like this feels like Spider Island almost like to the issue. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, I'll get it out of the way and say, like, I didn't think that this issue was particularly strong. I don't think it's a bad issue, but following up the last issue, which I thought was probably the best issue of the Spencer run since the first issue, this was a little bit of a letdown for me. And I think it gets back to what you were saying, which is I don't really know what Craven's play is. And I felt like the last issue did a good job of kind of like, you know, nudging our way closer to figuring that out and gave a little bit of stakes for Spider-Man. And I thought this issue would continue to expand on that, but I actually thought it was a kind of a diversion when I felt like we should be really stepping on the gas. Uh, Like a lot of this issue was dealing with like things that I don't even think are necessarily involved with this story. Like the shush stuff. Right. Uh, Like as excited as I am to see that character step up into the spotlight, like, you know, so to speak, I was like, what is he doing in my Craven story? Um, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, I mean, I like this issue overall. I just was like, I still want to know what Spider-Man's like, what are the stakes for him in this beyond life and death? You know, what, what is the moral arc that we're going to start kind of heading down here? Where is this story going? And we still have four issues left and some HU issues, but I thought that this issue would be more of a, a gasser than like a kind of a, kind of a pause for other things. What, what do you think about this issue? About this issue? I'm, I, I mean, just to, just to give one more comment on, on the last issue that kind of, that kind of dovetails with this one, Dan, I, I, I guess I would say that things were elevated to me because like certainly the threat and the level of threat we know are very high. It's just kind of why the why of the threat is still unknown and that carries over into this issue. So I, I, I feel that's what still needs to be resolved to really put the story into a higher gear. But but certainly the establishment of the threat itself of, of Craven and the and Central Park and this kind of, you know, I isolated bubble of like, you know, chaos and whatnot, it's it's that I, I, I like that as a concept. I think that's pretty cool. And like there's definitely this element of of, oh man, how is Spider Man gonna get out of this? Um, which is what keeps you reading for me. So that's cool. So now transitioning strictly into this issue, I mean, this this definitely felt it's kind of that trademark um, middling transitory, you know, transitionary issue of of a of a Spider Man arc. You know what I mean? Like, although um, I I think I might have a slightly more favorable view of it than you did, just because like even though it kind of felt a little middling and didn't really advance much in terms of, again, the why of things going on, it it felt very active and moving and intense. I liked the intensity of this comic a lot. Like, you know, like it it got, you know, okay, we only lost the iguana. 
so far. <laughs> Rest There's of- a few others who I couldn't identify. Right. Like animal characters that I'm like, I don't know that I know who that person is. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but. Yeah, I mean, is Stegron gone? I mean, are we are we led to believe that Stegron bit the dust in this issue? I think they would be more explicit with it if 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 he died. Yeah, I, I mean, he. I mean, look, Iguana is not a huge character, and neither is Stegron, but he's still a little bit of a step above Iguana, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Not just because you know he's appeared on our show a bunch of times. He is a friend of the show. He's after a friend all. of the pod. Um, but you know, like. Especially when that thing happened, when the scene happened with Iguana, like it definitely kind of like raised the stakes of, oh man, like they're killing people here. And like, you know, like you don't know who might go next. It was so like the intensity of it kind of worked for me. And I, and I think that's part of what like maybe bumps this up a notch for me just in terms of like my enjoyment of it as a story, but like kind of looking at it more artistically and creatively, you know, in terms of its execution, did it do everything it needed to do? No, it didn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so let's talk about the first kind of like that iguana moment, you know, which is, is, is kind of a big moment. I mean, we get this big splash of all the characters running from the Craven robots, which I thought were people in suits, but uh, I was wrong. They are like VR robots. Uh, you know, controlled remotely. Yeah, that's a bit of a letdown for me because that's, that was – to me, again, it was like why are we recruiting all of these hunters? Now, granted – is it that Craven was truly recruiting them or just dominating them? I don't know. Um, but what was the point of bringing in all these hunters and, and, and game hunters if they were just going to operate VR machines? I mean, I still think there's like a card to be played here. Like, it's my sense that they spent all this time establishing the VR visors and stuff because they're not going to be benevolent. Like, they're going to use these to do something with these people. There's some other, like, you know, thing to turn. You know, like something is yeah. going to happen. Oh, yeah. These people are totally going to get screwed by Craven and Arcade here. There's no yeah. question. Yeah. A- absolutely. Whether that's they like use their credit cards to like bankrupt them or something like that. There, There's something to, to, you know, to do there. I didn't love the way that these characters were written. I'm going to be honest. Like I thought that some of the dialogue was really corny and probably like probably intentionally corny. But like having them say like. I'm so hot for you right now or like taking out your anger on someone for not dating them in high school. Like I get it. It's kind of like toxic masculinity stuff and like hip modern language from like aloof people, but it kind of like made them into cartoons instead of actual threats to me. And like, I should feel like these robot guys are really threatening, you know, um, because they are the main threat of this issue. And coupled with, you know, Humberto Ramos's artwork, which I felt went a, uh, like a tad more cartoony in this issue than the last one. Like, this feels like a totally different tone than the last issue where we got that, like, beautiful silent sequence while they were turning on the shield. Like, this is just, like, jokes and words and big splashy panels. Um, I guess I didn't buy into the threat quite as much as I did in the last issue with these robot characters. Yeah, I, I I can see where you're going with that. I mean, it's just you know, it, it's 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 definitely a letdown, and and also like, I, you know, I'm I'm also kind of a little confused by the whole like, oh, they're 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 faster and stronger cravens. I mean, like, 
Craven's supposed to be the best, right? So why, why why are we having something that's faster and stronger? You know, like I mean, and I, it, I always am bothered by that in narratives when they feel like the need to like, you know, like knock out the legs from underneath their main villain just to like up a threat because it doesn't mean anything to me. You you know what I mean? Like they're faster and stronger than Craven. Okay, fine, but like they were already scary as they were. You didn't need to like make them that powerful. Right. Right. Yeah, so so I I I'm with you on that. I mean, again, it's it's just you know, if I, if I, if I may kind of just say this point outright, what is I I still don't understand what the motivation is here of Craven. Like it's it's you know, we we had this 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 big introduction to this whole situation where like, you know, this is kind of like he he I mean, my understanding is he wants Spider-Man to kill him, right? Like, isn't that, that seems to be my understanding? Yes, that's that's what he wants. So, if that is the goal, why is he putting him in a situation where he can kill, where where he can be killed by somebody else? It just it still doesn't make sense to me. Like, I I don't get what how A leads to B here, and, and especially if those robots are more powerful than Craven, right? Who previously defeated Spider Man, right? And it's in it, you know, and it's not like it doesn't seem to be the case of oh, it's not like the gauntlet where it's like we got to weaken him to 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 get something out of him because that's not you know is it is it like the only the only thing that I keep coming back to is is like you know is this going to test Spider Man's morality to a point because you know Spider Man is never going to willingly kill Craven right like that's from our understanding right. No, and the closest he got was like Grim Hunt, and then you know we got that kind of like flash forward responsibility moment where he like backs down from it. Although he does give his wife the mark of Cain, which right. was interesting. Yeah, but I was gonna say like I, I, I guess the only the only possibility is is with this whole setup, the goal is to just completely test Spider Man's morality to a point where. By not killing Craven, something so catastrophic happens that will just scar him for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Like the deaths of hundreds of others or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's just that, that that blood will be on his hands. I guess I to me, that's the only possible route in terms of what the play is. But like, again, we're still not like like we're now three issues in and I, I, I want to start hearing what the plan is. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, we're starting to get some morality stuff. Like, I thought that the Vulture Gibbon stuff was interesting. You know, it's like really a basic, simple morality thing, you know. But, like, we're already starting to play with themes and, and ideas about, like, how much do these villains actually trust Spider-Man? And and I think if, if it comes down to one thing, it will be Spider-Man has to choose, like, the death of Kraven versus, like, the death of all these villains by someone else's hands. You know, I mean, to me, that would be kind of interesting. It's like, if he doesn't actually do the killing, does he still feel responsible for it or something like that? Like, maybe that's where we're going. Um, I I like that stuff with the given. I like that he acknowledged that the given only tried to really kill him once. Like, and we've never seen the character again. So I thought that was funny. (laughs) Um, What do you think about all the MJ stuff? I mean, we spend a significant portion of this book with MJ in the apartment kind of figuring out how she's dealing with this. What, what, what did you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I feel, 
again, this it was some important character work in terms of trying to <clears throat> make her less of a like you know same old MJ damsel. Not not. Let me let me rephrase that. I I feel like they're they're doing a good job here of trying to get away from kind of like that initial Peter MJ coupling like that we saw like in the late 80s and early 90s where you know like oh we don't want to marry them off because then she'll just be a damsel in distress and then they just made her a damsel in distress anyway. Um you know like I I I I like that they're working to try and create some independence and and show some growth in her character. Um, but I mean, not, not to jump ahead, um, to the bigger reveal in this comic, but like the, the, the incorporation of Shashir really threw me because I was not ready for it. And I'm not sure I need Shush in this story too. Yeah. I feel the same way on, I want to talk about that in a moment. Yeah. I want to talk about the first MJ scene where she's kind of dancing in the apartment, listening to music and, like kind of being a bit carefree while Peter is out kind of risking his life. I thought it was a really interesting evolution for the character, especially if you compare it to Craven's last hunt where that books used MJ to just sit in her apartment and worry about Peter. Yeah. So like, and they call out the character growth here. Um, Allow me to, to bring in something that's not comics related to this. Do you, do you know about this movie, Free Solo? I don't, but I, I, I'm sure you're going to tell me. It's, uh, it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary this year. It's about a guy who um, climbs El Capitan in Yosemite. It's like that 90-meter vertical rock face. It's just straight up and down. And to free solo something means to do it without any ropes or harnesses. He's just going to like climb the sheer face of this rock and it's i think having watched this movie it's one of the greatest like athletic feats of mankind it's it's incredible but like at any minute he could die and just fall to his death and there's nothing to save him um and many people have died um and he's the first person to do this but what's interesting about the movie is that it explores um his relationship with his new girlfriend through this, who basically has to like accept that while he's doing this, he might just fall to his death and they'll never say anything to each other ever again. And so like reading this issue after having watched that movie really made me like, they couldn't be more similar, right? Like MJ has to kind of just like know that like every time he goes out, he might not come back again. And in, in free solo, it's interesting because he basically tells her like, my like passion for climbing rocks supersedes our relationship. Like I may love you, but my life is like about climbing this rock uh, or about climbing these mountains. And I think you could watch the movie and find this guy to be like really uh, like obnoxious or negative, or you'd be like, why don't they split up? But what I found so moving about it is that this, this woman who is still with him because they appeared together at the Academy Awards. Basically, she's like doesn't like that he does this, but she understands that by telling him to stop, she would be like damaging his life in 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 a way that is almost worse than death. He would be not able to follow his passions. Mm. And it, it's like a perfect one-to-one comparison for uh this relationship. And so I I don't know, I I wanted to get that out because I I found it beautiful that this issue actually kind of explored that that she like while she still can look out the window and worry about Peter, she kind of has resigned herself to going on with her life because she knows she's not going to be able to stop him. And um, 
I, I like that a lot. And so I had talked last episode about, you know, Alan and I had talked that like perhaps no trouble was going to befall MJ and she would just be fine and, you know, find a way to move on past P- Peter being Spider-Man and a way to live with it. And it would be about exploring, can Peter move past, you know, him being Spider-Man and being in a relationship but, um, I mean, this is a segue to talking about Shush. Like, I was a bit let down. Like, as much as I wanted to see Shush coming back into the narrative in a meaningful way, I was a bit let down that we're not going that that route, which is not a knock into this comic because it shouldn't be living up to what I put onto it. But I also felt like, what is Shush doing in this story? So I want to hear, what did you think about Shush? You said you were thrown by it? Yeah, because, uh, like you said, I mean, like, you know, we've been... Since since the Spencer run began, we've been dealing with these kind of different threads, and uh, you know, and and you know, not to kind of riff off what you just said. I mean, like, I guess my own expectations. I shouldn't necessarily judge a comic harshly for not fulfilling what my own expectations of of what what it should be. But like, to me, like, I I thought that the shush story and Craven's stories were two separate things like that that I, I I wouldn't have been shocked if one kind of fed into the other one way or another but I didn't think that they would be so critically intertwined which is what this seems to set up now and even from the opening page where we get the centipede and the spider in an ode to Craven's last hunt with the spider and the rat right. imagery you know it's as soon as I saw the centipede there I knew it was Shush's dialogue and I was like, "Oh, this 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 centipede and shush are going to be a part of this." Yeah. Sorry for cutting you off. No, no. I mean, but that's exactly it. It's it's it, it, we got this from the beginning, and and yeah, I thought the same thing at the beginning. I'm like, wait, why are we going right to shush? Like, what is what does shush have to do with this Craven story? It's, and again, especially since we there are still so many unresolved questions on my end, at least in terms of what this Craven story, where this Craven story is going and what Craven's long-term plan is um, and how he plans to get to that end. Um, So to then bring in this other like major dangling thread that we've had for the last 18 issues into this whole thing. I I mean, I, I, I get, I guess I understand why Spencer would be going in this direction. It kind of like, I mean, this is, this is, this is his story. I mean, like it's very clear now. This is, this is his big story. This is, this is where he's going to bring in all the big things. And then, you know, once, once it's all said and done, I'm sure we're going to reset in some way and we're going to have another big story. But like, to me, like, I almost feel like you're almost kind of diminishing your own potential returns here in, in, bringing in too much it's 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 almost like overkill it's like like let's have a let's have a really good craven story because it's been a while and then once that's done we can have a shush story but like i i don't understand why they need to be the same story i also feel like there's so much that's up in the air about this you know story where we don't know motivations yet and there's all these moving pieces to add another big question mark and another big moving piece it's like, I don't know how these are going to dovetail or if they ever will. And to have Spider-Man's sole motivations in this story be to like basically get out of this, protect people so he can go and save Mary Jane as the mists made him see, but have that not be related to Craven feels like it's opening itself up to not be like an open and shut book. You know, like it, it's, it's like, oh, but I don't know how that will ever dovetail back into this because 
it seems like a whole other thing. So suddenly, the main character of our book's motivations are not related to the main adversary that he, you know, seems to be facing. It's like, it's just, it's just getting its wires crossed. Right. I'm, I mean, and, and frankly, if we find out that Craven and the Shush character were working together, like, then, which I don't know is necessarily the case, but if they, turns out that they are, like, there, there, there's been no work done to establish that that was a possibility. To me, that seems like an unfair twist. You know what I mean? Like, um, you have to at least lay some groundwork that that's a possible, uh, a, a possible resolution to this. It, it, it just seems like, you know, we're trying to, like, tie everything together that's been floated out there for the last 18 issues without necessarily thinking if it goes together. Like, like you know, ch- chocolate and peanut butter sure taste great, but, you know, throwing pickles into the mix may not be the best thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I was trying to make a chocolate peanut butter nod myself, but you you threaded that needle. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> what, what, what do you... Uh, what do, you, what do you think about the way that Shush just kind of characterized here? I mean, I thought it was odd that his monologue didn't maintain his typical kind of like demon-like lettering. Um, but like what's interesting with the character, he's got a weird sense of humor, like bringing up Hobbes the tiger. Right. I thought was kind of a strange thing for like a dastardly evil villain to bring up. Uh, but it been interesting. I love Calvin Hobbes. Um, but even in the end, his kind of big smile grin, it's very Joker-esque. Uh, yeah, I mean, now now I feel like we're back to the ja- – I was going to say the Jackal since he's basically Spider-Man's Joker, you know, like – but yeah, it, it, it totally – like this This is a lot going on, a lot to unpack in this issue and, um, and yet so little truly happens in terms of plot advancement. So it's kind of weird. Um, yeah. I'm going to need the next one to kind of like pick up the, the slack a little bit. Like, I hope the next one is not another issue like this. Like, I can do this once or twice, but I felt like a lot of like Dan Slot events, which we've done a number of them now together, Mark. Like, it'll be like four issues like this, where it's like a lot of water, you know, boiling, right? And then like the final issue is meant to wrap everything up. And like, I don't know that I can wait like four or however many more issues to find out the motivations of these characters and really get this like plot pieces moving together a little bit. Um, but some things are already being executed on, like the the Black Ant and Taskmaster stuff. <laughs> we knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought perhaps Taskmaster might, like, not choose not to ultimately turn on his friend, but I guess I kind of overestimated uh, how close of friends they were. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we definitely, from the... I mean... I'm pretty sure two issues ago we were saying, oh, what's with Black Ant? Why is he in the pile? <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's probably more ultimately to come from that. Uh, who, who knows? Maybe Black Ant will go inside of Craven and explode him from the inside out. <laughs> Try surviving that, Craven. There you go. Yeah. What do you think about Humberto Ramos's work in this, especially compared to the last issue? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I, I, I don't think he got it's much to play with here. I mean, like some of the some of the action was 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 nicely rendered, and and I, I you know I think like his kind of kinetic style certainly lent to the um, the the danger element and that feeling of kind of being off center and a little unnerved by the action in this comic. But also at the same time, I mean, you know, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, I said to you, like, oh, didn't 
didn't so-and-so bite the dust too? Like, like, and, and I don't know, like, I, I feel like I should not be asking that question to you on the podcast. Like, like, you know, like that needs to be rendered more clearly. Like, you know, like, okay, the iguana one's pretty clear, but like there were others there. It was kind of murky and it was like, so wait, what is the fate that these, that befell these characters? I mean, like, I think that needs to be a little more clear one way or another. And that, that was, that kind of missed the mark in my opinion. Well, that gets back to some of the kind of essential questions I have about like this issue's story, which is like you have like Iguana getting killed and some of these other characters getting killed, but then the Gibbon just gets like netted up, you know, and you're like, why are these hunters holding back? You know, like just kind of aren't they here to kill? Like that's their goal. Right. It seems convenient like that some of them are being just maimed, whereas others are being murdered. Um but I'm sure that will work itself out. Well, how else are we going to get that point HU issue of the Gibbon, uh, Dan? You know, you're right. I'll forgive it. I just want that Gibbon issue. That's all I want. <laughs> I have one request. I want to hear the name Martin Blank issued in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man again. There you go. Um, I still think, like, yeah, I think a lot of his chaos stuff is a little hard to ferret out. Like, there was one panel where the owl was talking, yes, but he was, like, shoved into deep background. Yeah, they, 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 I did not see the owl, because I was like, oh, Owsley, oh, wait, I can't see him in this. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I do think, like, all that is made up for, like, the MJ stuff is really beautiful. I love Humberto Ramos's version of MJ. I think she's one of the iconic versions of the character. Yeah, and I like his shush stuff too. For the record, I, I I do like how he's rendered shush so far. I mean, I know Otley kind of created the character, but I, I I think there's something, you know, in terms of like the 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 long slithering centipedes and stuff like that that also works very well with Ramos's style. Actually, I think technically Ramos is the creator of the character because he did the backup in issue one. Oh, there you go. Where they introduced the character. So I don't know. But um, that and it could be someone else entirely that designed the character, and then they went off that design. Like when they bring in outside people to kind of mess with stuff. Well, that's a good question to ask Nick Spencer if we ever have him back on the show. Um, one last little beat I wanted to ask you about. You know, maybe you had some feelings. Like MJ finds the centipede in her hair, but then ultimately kind of lets the centipede go. Uh, I mean, she's letting them go into a rainstorm, which. Maybe not the healthiest thing for a bug in New York, but um, what do you think about that? Because there seems to be a sort of like tenderness from MJ that Shush is responding to saying like, you know, like when all the world's order is kind of upended, you know, it's the people that are the most kind hearted that are often like the most uh, kind of easily dispatched. They're kind of let go. Do you, do you see some kind of tenderness from Shush to her or is it kind of like a, a bitter tenderness that he's like, you know the weak people of the earth need to be culled, kind of thing. No, I I, I think it, it's it's more the former than the latter. I mean, we've we've speculated about this, Dan. About I mean, you know, who Shush is or what the potential is, and and <clears throat> I still, f- you know, more or less agree with you, or or at least agree with one version of you. Uh, I don't know if your opinion has changed. I mean, I did miss that one episode, so. Um, but that but that the, that the character is. I, I feel like it's some kind of manifestation of of Peter, whether it's an alternative version or or kind of like I mean I think you've kind of talked about that it's like almost like the embodiment of the marriage, right? Is that still kind of where you stand on it? That's my still my top theory. Um, I mean, there's something about like the centipede stuff, but um, you know I could see Nick Spencer writing that off any any which way. 
I mean, this to me continued like there's an obsession with MJ and he continues to use the word Pete when referring to Peter, which is a sort of familiarity. And I just think it, it it's in somehow tied into the Mephisto deal in some way. And uh, I mean, it was yet to play out. We just got the solicit for Amazing Spider-Man issue 24, which will be about like the one year mark for Nick Spencer on the book. So, like, that's the issue, apparently, where we're going to learn who and what Shush is. Right. So, shortly thereafter, this story, which I think runs to issue 22. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're on a collision course here with whatever Shush is. And I, I don't know. I think our, the initial theory that I had is still holding up pretty strong. Yeah. So, I mean, the point being that if what you are suggesting is true, like, yeah, I would think that that even if there is kind of a coldness and a and a and a almost a violence um, to the idea of the marriage coming from this character, there there will also be a tenderness to it, you know, and a, and a, and a, and, a, and a, you know, it's kind of like you know, like it, 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 it's it's cruel because it's hurt, not because it's innately evil. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So, um, what's your grade on this one? I. I'm gonna. It's funny. Like I, I think I felt high, more highly about it until I started like actually talking it out. But like I, I'm gonna still stick with a solid B on this. I, like I said, there were parts of it that, you know, really kind of kept me into it and kept me going. But um, you know, kind of like what you said back to a few minutes ago, like one of these issues per, for this story is more than enough for me. Like if 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 this becomes a trend, my opinion of the storyline is gonna drop fast. Yeah, and I'm right there with you. I'm going to give it a B. That was what I was going to say before we had a conversation, and uh, I'm sticking with it. I probably would have done B plus until we started talking. So, <laughs> oh, look at me, negative Nelly. Well, no, no, it wasn't negative. It was just kind of like you know having you know having the the forum to discuss these ideas the way we do. Dan, we're very fortunate that we do this. It, it kind of you know moved my needle a little bit as it should. You know that's what conversation and dialogue should be, right? You were not we're not here to just stand firm in our opinions. Well, I you and I have a fundamental disagreement about conversation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so that. That's what we're going to disagree about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look who came crawling back for that one, Dan. (laughs) So many of these .hu issues have been truly excellent, but none have been as unforgettable as Amazing Spider-Man number 18.hu. It's unforgettable because I'm back to talk about it. Of course, Mark, of course. All of our patrons at Patreon already know what Dan and I thought of this issue, but it's high time you guys all tuned in as well. So let's get right into our review. Yo, what up? It's your boy, Genatio. So here we are. We're talking about what is it? Amazing Spider-Man number eighteen dot hu. Yeah, this is the first dot hu that you and I have talked about. I guess there's only one more to go. That's right. Uh, you know, we, I think we both liked the last one a fair bit. So, so by us doing these episodes, Dan, are we indicating that um, in terms of our collections that these count as part of the run? 
Well, I mean, I, I mean to ask you about that. I mean, I think they do. I think that they're pretty essential to the story that's being told here. They're essential to the story that's being told. But I mean, what if it was like a crossover with Spectacular Spider-Man or something? I mean, does that count? I don't know. I'm just saying. I mean, I would say like if, if for our runs, if you're missing issues of Craven's Last Hunt. Right. You're kind of missing something essential to your collection. You're missing it to your collection, but do you still own all of Amazing Spider-Man if you don't have the web of Spider-Man of Craven's Last Hunt? Well, look, you made me get Ends of the Earth one shot. <laughs> like, this is this is far more essential than that. Okay, gotcha. Well, whatever. The thing is, Dan, you have it. I have it. I have all the annuals. You have all the annuals. You have Ends of the Earth. Let's just move on. <laughs> Does that mean that you don't have the Ends of the Earth? I do have Ends of the Earth. <laughs> all right, all right. I just wanted, I wanted to clear that up. Okay, okay. we're not moving past this. Right. Uh, quite yet. So, um, I don't know. Let's talk about these hunted issues so far. Cause now that we got two of them done. It seems like the pattern is pretty obvious, right? They're kind of like giving backstories, summaries to flesh out characters that are in, you know, this book. We're getting one with the lizard next who like, it looks to become a major character in this hunting storyline. Right. And you know, it's kind of like, at least for this issue, I felt like it made the Gibbons backstory seem like one coherent thought even though it likely wasn't right. Right. You know, and, and these books have been used to kind of like raise the stakes emotionally. I feel like for the hunted storyline, like I can't imagine not reading this and then reading issue 19. Like it so enriches that issue. It's referenced multiple times in 19 and, and both in a kind of, yeah, no, I agree with you a hundred percent. You, you need it. You need to read these to kind of fully appreciate the story. Although obviously you, you, could still know what's going on to a very healthy degree without having read them. So that in that respect, it's kind of perfectly done. And, um, you know, it is kind of interesting too, um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here. Like, you know, a couple months ago when we first started talking about the storyline, we were like, oh, we're going to get these little standalones with the villains and the Gibbon gets one. What? Like, you know, kind of making fun of it. And this probably ends up being... Um, one of the most devastating single issues of Spider-Man I've read in a long, long time. Although I still have some issues with it in that regard, but so it's 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 you know like what could have essentially have been a a one-off joke. I feel that the that they they took well advantage of making this like you said a moment with with real emotional stakes and pathos to it, which is 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 something to be admired to that degree. I think the reason I was so excited about this book is related to something that you're saying, which is like, I saw it coming down the pike and I thought, you know, Nick Spencer, he's not just going to pull out the gibbon and not do anything interesting with it because why else use the gibbon? You know, like he's kind of been so forgotten over the years. Like there had to be a reason that Spencer wanted to tell this story. And immediately my mind went to the kind of like war and jo of jokes and riddles from Tom King's Batman run where they kind of like reintroduced the character of Kite Man and made him the central figure of that book and redeemed that silly character in a really touching and profound way. Have you read The War of Jokes and Riddles? I have not, but that, that sounds very good. <laughs> yeah, it is really good. It's truly excellent. Like if you are like on and off Batman fan, just go pick up like I think it's like volume four of the new run. You don't need to read anything else. Just know that like the Riddler and the Joker are going to war with each other, but the whole thing is told through like a narrative structure following the observations of Kite Man and his backstory. 
And it turns this goofy joke of a character into this truly profound, deeply sad story. And I immediately thought that must be what he's doing. You know, I'm sure he's read that book. And I mean, I think anyone that's read that and has read this could see the very obvious parallels between these stories at, you know, ultimately leading in, let's just say it, the Gibbons death yes, uh, yes. in this issue. We get some real quality character moments. Like we get this whole subplot involving his relationship with Princess Python. Again, like another kind of one-off joke of a character, but but by bringing these characters together in a, in a very, I feel, sincere and, and serious way, you, you get some interesting plot twists that develop out of that. Um, you know, so that 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 is good. But this book is also quite brutal. You know, like, I mean, like, yes, he, he dies, but it's it's also how he dies. Well, yeah, there's this one page. It's like a nine panel sequence of him just getting beat to a pulp. Not to mention that he is riddled with bullets throughout the entire book. I mean, this is like like almost like the passion of the gibbon. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Like it, it is a. I mean, I wouldn't compare the Gibbon to, like, Christ or something, but, like, you know, he is a misunderstood figure in, in all ways, and all of his character flaws kind of come out here in, in a way that's really saddening. I mean, I, I like this story a lot for how it looks back on the character's history. I mean, in his first appearance, the whole idea was that, like, everyone mocked him, including Spider-Man, which kind of sent him into, like, a, you know, a fury that, like he would ultimately come to regret. But I think that like it kind of, this story did a good job re- reca- recapturing that story and adding in this kind of bullying element that suggests like that Spider-Man was just kind of the latest bully in his life. And to me, it, it applied an interesting moral lesson about treating everyone with respect at all times, you know, because you never know the context with which people are entering into relationships or encounters with you and that Spider-Man's brief moment of callousness feels like you can feel for the given in that moment because like he's suffered a life of slings and here's a guy that is just piling on. And, and I think it suggests that, you know, Stan did actually have like an interesting thing to say with the given, no matter how silly we kind of like regard those issues. No, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, again, kind of more, seriously than I ever thought I would have to be thinking about the Gibbon. But again, that's maybe that's, I feel like that speaks to the general point of this comic, but you know, as, as well done as this issue is Dan, and you and I kind of talked a little bit about this um, offline when I first read this comic, um, you know, the, 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 the art is, you know, Ken, Ken Lashley's art is really phenomenal here in in terms of the, the darkness of it. Um, You know, we get all this great backstory and context, but you know, like, there's this element to me that's like, that keeps going back to the fact is, I mean, did we did we bring the Gibbon back just to kill him? And if we did that, which seems to be the case, you know, with this larger story about, you know, with, with Hunted kind of being, we're still kind of in this no man's land in terms of what the actual plot of the storyline is. And we'll get to that in our next Patreon episode when we talk about... Uh, 19 like i don't know like i like i want to feel that like his death was for something and i still don't have that sense and now it's just making me more frustrated by the lack of direction in the larger storyline and and 
And I don't know if that is going to ultimately sour my opinion on this story when years go on. Because, you know, even if we do get a good resolution, like in the moment, you know, like, like I want to feel like, like, oh, man, this this character was so misunderstood and he died and it's sad. And I, I want to see Spider-Man avenge that and, 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 you know, do better. But I still don't know what what he's doing it for and and that's really frustrating and kind of hard for me to get my arms around as a reader because like i i just need more information about what this story is we're not getting it and it's really ticking me off <laughs> it is like kind of a level of darkness that we don't see in books like this like it truly is just a a portrait of a casualty of war right in some way you know like we we I don't think that Spider-Man will ever find out what happened in this story. And, and, and to me that makes it all the more tragic, especially the kind of princess Python subplot that ultimately the Gibbon decided to side with the vulture in issue 18, because he was trying to reconnect with this former like love of his. And that like Spider-Man's interpretation is probably that just that the Gibbon didn't trust him. Whereas the reality of the situation is that he was looking for Princess Python somewhere in the, you know, the dome. And to me, it suggests like a sort of humanity that like all of these characters have a story that's happening that we might not ever, you know, learn about. Um, And, and, and so for me, like I, I feel that complaint and I, and I totally understand it. Like you don't want just to people like someone to, just write something just to hurt you. Yeah. But to me, it, it like raises the stakes considerably because every person that dies in this story going forward, I'm going to imagine has humanity in them. Y- you know what I mean? In the way that like I would have laughed off the Gibbon before, you know, which is, I guess, fitting for the Gibbon. Right. Uh, and, and his kind of crutch. But, um, like this book to me, like there's the moment in 19 and I don't want to get too deep into it where we see all of the bodies of various people that have been killed. And I think I'm thinking when I see that, like it's so much richer to me, the stakes are so much higher because I know all these people are human beings in some way, you know? And the Gibbon is especially painful because like it's obvious why he chose the Gibbon for this story. He's a character that's always been looked at like over yeah. like no one has paid him any attention or offered him any empathy. And, and so he's asking you, the reader to give him empathy. And the only moment that he truly gets empathy from anyone in the books, other than Spider-Man in his dying moment is like the people who kill him, kill him to put him out of his misery. Right. You, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, I don't know. It is, it is gruesome and perhaps a bit much, but for me, the takeaway is like it elevates Hunted perhaps higher than it's due in the pages of the regular issues because I don't know that the story really deserves this kind of like pain in the way that it's being written. So you might be right, Mark, ultimately. Um, but like for what it is, I thought that this issue has enriched my experience more than I think almost any other issue in this book has. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I, I, I mean, I see what you're saying, and, and you know, I, I, I guess I, I still will keep an open mind and, and reserve judgment until all the pieces are in puzzle, but uh, pieces are in place. But yeah, it, it's it's just kind of hard for me to kind of break from this idea of. I mean, I know it's kind of 
a reflection on larger things going on and and Spencer has a knack for that but you know like this idea of what exactly did he die for you know what i mean like we still don't know we still don't know what craven's plan is you know like we're we're now more than halfway through this storyline and you know again not to get too far ahead of ourselves but you know we'll talk about it in our next episode like you know i feel like the characters are even now kind of almost joking like What's the plan, man? You know what I mean? It's like I feel like Scott Evil with are you just going to shoot the guy or what? You know, <laughs> like 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 what is what are you doing? <laughs> so so with all this still up in the air, I mean even if Spider-Man never knows what happens here and he probably won't and that's fine. I don't think that's what my issue is, but it's like but me as the reader, I want to know what like, you know, if we're if we're going to be put through all this, um I I I I the last bit of context I need to know is why you know what 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 is what is putting us as a reader through all this putting spider-man uh through what he's being put through why is this happening what is the payoff you know like why why am i investing my time in this and my emotions in this and, and feeling manipulated by it and i'm not saying that necessarily is a bad thing but like you know i'm 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 allowing myself to kind of succumb to the story and and to submit to it but why um, and we still haven't gotten it. Um, we haven't gotten it through this many issues. We're not going to get it in the next issue when we talk about that. I'm kind of losing patience and it's affecting how I view everything going forward until we finally get the why. I think you're right. I mean, ultimately cheap manipulation is the worst, you know, feeling like you've had your heartstrings pulled for no reason is it's painful because you can see the artificiality of it. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, you know, I'm a big boy, Dan. I, 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 I'm okay. I, I, I'll, I'll get by. But yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, like, I think this is just like me, and I'll say this when we talk about it. Uh, I talk about nineteen in a few minutes, or well, it won't be a few. It'll be a few minutes for us, not for you guys. <laughs> um, uh, depending on how Dan releases these, um, but I, you know, I like. It's. I'm just kind of pleading with Spencer and with Marvel and editorial. Like, like you got you got to move on the story, guys. You know what I mean? Like, let's like let's 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 put the let's get the action going. You know. So that's 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 my final that's my final piece on it, Dan. So I mean, anything else you want to say about this issue? Just two quick notes. I thought that the final line, at least nobody's laughing, to be like so incredibly brutal uh, for this character. Yeah. And then the the other note I wanted to mention is like there's a point where the bullies are like picking on the Gibbon in these flashbacks, which are wonderfully rendered by Eric Archinaga, Archinaga mm-hmm. uh, the, the colorist who kind of does this kind of bende dot textures to signal like kind of like you know, Bronze Age, Silver Age comics, um, where they're picking on the Gibbon about his father, and he gets very defensive about his father, and to me it like it implied like. Is the Gibbons father actually like a primate of some kind? Mm. Like, you know, we've never really gotten information on why Martin Blank looks the way he does. But by bringing up his lineage, it made me think perhaps there is something there. I don't think we'll ever find out. Right. But, um, you know, it seemed deliberate to me. Yeah, definitely. No, that's a good point, too. Yeah, interesting stuff for this character. I mean, I'm glad that. We got this time with this character, you know, I, I you know, you know, it, it was it was nice to not like because it was funny. We were talking about oh, when did we last see the Gibbon? And I think they're and they and they even referenced it at one point in this issue. Like, 
I forgot what series it was, but it was some B book where like him and the Grizzly and they were in the Grizzly mobile. I mean, like, you know, the, it's been so campy and like to not have this be camp was uh, really refreshing for me. I mean, I'm not going to be laughing at the Gibbon anymore. No, definitely not. <laughs> you know, like he's a real character for me now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's do grades. Mark, what's your grade on this oh, book? Oh, God, this is such a tough book for me to grade, Dan. Um, I'll, I'll give it a B plus based on just the, the, the merits of the story itself, um, but holding back because of my other issues that I discussed here. What about you? I'm, I'm at a B plus, too. Okay. I, I think it's one of my favorite issues of this story so far. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, thanks again for joining us for our review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We've got a ton of great content coming down the pike for you all. Thanks again to Alan Schurstel for joining me for those two reviews as our first guest replacement for Mark. Not that anyone could ever replace you, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Alan. You're so great. Oh, we love you, Alan. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Dan, what's coming up next for our listeners? And will I be there for part of it? Well, Mark, I promise you, you'll be there for because this is the episode that you put out there into the world and are making me kind of do a lot of homework for. So speaking of which, we wanted to give everyone a little bit of time to dive deep into the Marvel team-up issues because we're talking about issues one through 70, which aren't exactly available for anybody anywhere. But hopefully some of you guys have the ability to read some Marvel team-up issues because we're going to be discussing that series from a helicopter view on our next regular episode of the show. And it's about time. But, like, I wanted to say, like, don't worry if you haven't read all 70 of those. Again, it's going to be a helicopter view. If you just know about Marvel Team-Up, you should be fine for joining us. No, I'm going to quiz everyone about Spider-Man's team-up with the Frankenstein monster, Dan. So be be forewarned. <laughs> it's, I'm looking forward to it because I'm reading these issues for actually the first time. So uh, I'll kind of bring that layperson's view to this next episode. Meanwhile, our Patreon subscribers should be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week, where we've already got special reviews of the entire Nick Spencer run up through issue number 22. Why wait to get caught up in a few months? Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork, this time from Barry Kitson. And that artwork should be coming out pretty soon if, uh, if you know, Barry can hit the timeline on that. So I'm excited to showcase that to all of our Patreon subscribers. But in the meantime, why not check out the Untold Talks of Spider-Man? It's our sister podcast that's covering all the hidden corners of Spider-Man's complicated web of stories. And if you need some friends to kind of help you through all of that, why not check out the amazing Spider-Slack community? It's like our app forum that you can chat with all of our spider friends you know just from our very own community there's a link to the community in the episode's description we hope you'll come and join us it's honestly some of the most fun i have talking about spider-man when i'm not with mark awesome dan so uh beyond the spider slack where else can we find you yeah i'm also on twitter at at sup spider talk talking about spider-man all the live long day much to the chagrin of my coworkers, uh, you know, it's, it's all kinds of crazy on Twitter. What about you, Mark? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chasing ASM Blog, and you can always buy my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. One of the things that opens your book is the motto that's come infamous in the Spider-Man community, Mark, 
what would I find if I peeled back the cover of that book? Yes, Dan, you would find the very famous words of our uh, great show, which is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next